Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Episode 1 Habeas Corpus There it was. It was plain as the nose on my face. It had been here a few days at least until somebody found it in Leakin Park. It's called the world's largest unregistered graveyard for a reason. People just leave anything here. Bodies, trash, dead animals. It seems to permeate through the soil, rocks, and trees. The usual statistics that I've seen within the past couple of years I've worked in this city. Baltimore used to be called the city that reads during the Schmoke administration. Now it's commonly called the city that bleeds. That's the lack of faith and pessimism that permeates through the people of this city. The smell, especially this body, was enough for me to vomit as I dove into my bag for my canister of Noxo. Once I applied it, I composed myself and got to work. The body belonged to a man and needed to become my focus, aside from the rhetoric or politics or whatever it was that seemed to want to separate mankind from itself. It was a black male, aged between 20 and 30, approximately 5 feet tall, dark brown eyes, shaved head, and bad teeth. The way he died, however, was what differentiates him from all the others. His throat was ripped out into a gash with a large sharp object. Not like a knife, but maybe like an axe to carve a large part of his neck clean off. The only thing keeping his head on his shoulders was his spine. The lower half of the cadaver was stained a crimson mess. Well, this was due to the gash, and most likely served as the reason for his demise. He was mostly standing upright when this happened, because it was all over him. His clothes were gone, and onto his chest was carved symbols of an unknown nature. To me, they looked like satanic script, surrounding an upside-down pentagram. I was disturbed by the sound of a noise behind me, and I turned my head to see my new partner behind me. First case, Detective Long? I asked, her gauging her response. Karen Long just got out of training for detective. She'd been on the police force for five years, but she never came across a dead body like this in narcotics. She oh. shuddered. First time I've seen anything like this, Lieutenant Chambers. I wasn't used to being called Lieutenant. I just got a promotion last week. I looked back at the body. If you want to watch, I'm okay with it, but I will test your knowledge, I said. I'll... I'll be okay. I handed her the Noxo. Put two dabs of this under each nostril. It'll help, trust me. She did as I instructed. I pointed to the body. Without looking at the police report, what do you see? She looked closer. Okay. Whatever cut his throat was not a conventional knife. Or they were trying to cover something up. So you think there was a strangulation? I pulled out a pair of neoprene gloves and put them on to test her theory. She gently lifted the corpse head to the left to see if there was any ligature marks from behind. Hmm. Looks like you're right, Detective. What else? Chances are that if there are ligature marks there, they should have them on their wrists and arms. But why cut out the throat if you're not going to cut them away from the arms and wrists? I looked down at the arms of the poor man. There were ligature marks there as well. I turned to her. 
What do you think happened to him? <clears throat> well, I have a feeling that he got involved with a group he didn't know involved itself in satanic worship, and that may have been what got him killed. Mm, what about a sexual angle? The satanic stuff could be a red herring. I asked to jog ideas out of her. I lifted the legs and separated them slightly. The penis and scrotum looked okay. There were no marks on them. I pulled them back to view his anus. There were signs of sexual contact. I probed inside gently to see if there was a deposit of semen or anything that could give us DNA on who might have done this. There was no semen, but I pulled out a cotton swab to collect a sample just in case. They rape him? Obvious signs of anal penetration, but no signs of rape at the moment. He might have been gay or bisexual. I put his legs back down with the utmost care. I stood up and looked at Karen, detective. What do you think the writing means? She pulled out a cell phone. Uh, I'm gonna check Google Translate. I was impressed she used other resources. That is valuable in our line of work. But I already knew the answer as I took Latin in college as an elective. She typed in the letters of the message and hit enter. It says, Abaddon knows everything. Abaddon sees everything. Worship the Infernal King. That's pretty close, I said. I walked up to the coroner who was waiting for me to be done. He's all yours now. So, what do you think? Is the satanic thing a red herring? <sighs> I'm not sure. It could be. Not very many satan worshippers out here in the hood. But I wouldn't be surprised if this was done to throw people off the track. I got done my paperwork at the precinct, got some pizza at Sorrento's and Arbutus for dinner, and then I got home just in time for my pillows to lull me to sleep. I didn't sleep very long. I was awakened to the sound of my cell phone going off. It cut through the darkness like a knife as I sat up in bed. I realized it was four in the morning. The number on my caller ID was the morgue. Hello, this is Lieutenant Chambers, I said trying to get the cobwebs out of my brain and fully understand what and who I was talking to. Lieutenant, um, we're sorry to call you this early in the morning, but we have a strange situation we need to follow up with. What's going on that couldn't wait until I got there at nine? I don't know how to say it. The boy you found in Leakin Park, his body is missing. I couldn't believe I heard what I had heard. Say that again? The boy is gone from the morgue. His body is missing. I got up out of bed in a panic. I'm on my way. Seventy minutes later, I got to the morgue. I wasn't dressed very professionally, just a white t-shirt and a pair of gray jogging pants. But at least I was there. I walked into the morgue office and saw the head of the department there with his hands on his face. I saw a man who couldn't explain what happened. Lieutenant, we even have footage of the room. I can't explain what happened. Let me see the footage, I asked. He gave me the chair. I saw the corpse being cut into for the autopsy. The coroner looked at the time on his watch and locked the corpse in its locker. An hour passes where no one comes in or out of the room, except the coroner, and he doesn't touch the locker. After the hour passes, the coroner comes back in to open the locker, and he realizes that there's no body in it. 
I saw from my own eyes. No one disturbed the footage. No one came in to open the locker. The body just vanished without a trace. I immediately sought answers. I couldn't let myself believe that this body vanished without a trace. I ran into the locker area and opened up the storage that the body was stored in. The metal shelf inside was bare. The back had no breaches or cuts to indicate being removed from elsewhere. This was the scariest thing I had ever seen. The satanic worshippers, the carvings on the body. What if... Then, I saw it. I must have been going crazy, but I saw it nonetheless. It was the body. It was standing there watching me in all of its gore. Its eyes were rolled into the back of its head, its guts were splayed open, and its sternum was ripped from the front. Inside of the chest cavity was a dark void. No organs, no blood, nothing. I pointed at it in horror. The head coroner looked at where I was pointing. What? What's wrong? You... You don't see that? The coroner walked over to the area I was pointing at and squinted. He turned back to me. No, what is it? Then he walked through the corpse to see if it was further back from where I was pointing. Then he walked back. I don't see it. What is it? I lowered my hand as the body walked to a mirror and extended its finger. He began to write something to me, and it showed up in blood. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was hyperventilating. Enough so that the head coroner got a leftover paper bag from a nearby Chinese restaurant for me to put over my nose and mouth. This didn't distract me from what I was seeing, as I was the only one who did. The poor boy, if he was a boy any longer, wrote on the mirror only one word. I noted that when he walked, a bloody footprint remained. This was what he was using to let me follow him. I pulled the bag away from my face. Josh, calm down! I stumbled to my feet and ran to follow the footsteps of the corpse as it walked clear out of the morgue. I followed the poor boy, asking it questions, trying to find out where it was leading me. He could only look me in the face. It was then I realized as much as he wanted to tell me, he couldn't. He had to show me. I had walked almost three miles as the sun rose over the horizon. I was tired from walking, but determined to see this through. He stopped in an abandoned townhouse on Winchester Street, nearby the liquor store. He didn't walk any further, but pointed at the house. I couldn't blame him. From the outside, the house had seen better days. The roof had caved in and a giant tarp was on top of it. The windows were boarded up and there was an orange sign on the door stating that the building was condemned by the city of Baltimore. The basement window was busted out. Sealing it off now didn't make any difference as I walked up the concrete steps and examined the door. Even though it was nailed shut, there was evidence that it was opened by someone other than the state previously. I turned back toward the corpse of the poor boy. He was still there, but didn't move a muscle. This was his last testament as to what had happened to him. I just had to put the pieces together, and I knew he wasn't going to leave me until I found out. Before going into the house, I called Karen. I told her to meet me with a kit and some armed officers just in case this was going to be dangerous. She asked what and how I was there. I didn't go to details about the boy. Karen showed up a half an hour later with two squad cars as a backup. 
She handed me the kit and spoke intimately. I got a call from the morgue, Joshua. They said you had a panic attack and ran off after seeing something after the body had disappeared? I pointed to the basement. This place is going to have our answers. How do you know? There wasn't even a complete autopsy or any information left. We have what we've reported. At least that'll be something to go on. But how did the body disappear? I don't even know. There's no way it was possible, considering the footage. What do you expect to find in there? I paused because I didn't have an answer. I just shrugged. I opened my kit and pulled out my neoprene gloves. Lastly, I made sure my pistol was on me and ready to use just in case. Uh, do we need a warrant? I pointed to the condemned sign. Uh, no one owns this place. This becomes a matter of probable cause in our investigation. I slowly opened the door of the townhouse. The house smelled like rats, roaches, and all kinds of vermin had been having a vacation down there for a long time. There was another smell, however, that definitely showed up as well. It was the smell of dried blood. We made sure it was safe to walk into the living room area. The floorboards creaked beneath my feet, but it was still sturdy enough. There were several dirty blankets, food scraps, cookie boxes, crack pipes, malt liquor bottles, and syringes around enough to know that homeless people were using this place to get high and sleep. The dining room, which had almost the same setup, except for a hole in the floor near the corner of the wall that led to the basement downstairs. The darkness greeted me like an old friend as I had the notion to peer down inside of it. Before I did, though, I thought about the upstairs and needing to cover ground more quickly. Detective Long, take an officer with you and check the upstairs. If it is a stable, see what you can find. Yes, Lieutenant. She started to slowly traverse the steps upward. The other officer, who didn't seem so confident in his job, stayed with me. What's down there? I shrugged. Let me borrow your flashlight real quick. He handed me a black mag light. I love these things. They were a source of light when you needed it and a weapon when you didn't have one. I turned it on and peered down into the void. I wasn't prepared for what I saw. I looked back at the officer. Do the stairs from the kitchen look any good? I might need a rope to drop down. The officer quickly looked at the basement steps from the mangled kitchen. He yelled from there to me. Steps are broken. Seven or eight of them shattered alone. I heard footsteps behind me as Karen came up to There's me. nothing up there in regards to the investigation. Did you find anything? I need to get down there. The officer came back. The stairs are bad, too. Uh, you could use the outside window. It's completely busted open, so there should be no glass fragments in the frame. I knew I was going to like her as a partner. I stood up and said... Yeah, I also think that this is the route that people took just to get down there in the first place. I walked quietly outside and down the steps. I peeked inside with a flashlight and saw a smaller room. There was a door that was shut that kept me from seeing into the large basement proper, but it was safe for me to go in. I think I can get down there, I muttered to Karen. We were there for so long already that some of the neighbors had come out of their homes to see what we were doing. They never approached us, and that was okay, too. Out of the corner of my eye, I could still see the corpse of the boy, waiting. I slipped my feet down into the window and pushed off inside. The smell of the house was just as bad upstairs, but this time the smell got worse. I knew I was getting close to finding out what was going on. 
I pulled my 9mm Beretta from my waistband and slowly opened the door. I shined my light inside. Several used mattresses covered the floor of the basement. The lingering smells of semen, blood, and sheer filth filled my nostrils. I thought at some point I should go back and ask Karen for my Noxo, but I didn't care anymore. I needed to do this for him. The further I walked in, I noticed strange stuff outside. There were ropes, like the kind you used to go boating. There was a pair of jumper cables, a soldering iron, and lastly a bloody axe leaning up against the wall. The soldering iron was probably used to carve those incantations on the boy's chest. The axe, well, I knew now that I had found my murder weapon. I bent over to inspect the soldering iron, and there was blood residue on it. But I also found a wallet. I opened up and saw something I needed. It was the ID of the boy. His name was Tyrone Childress. He was 25 years old. The picture on the ID was that of a cheerful young black man in the prime of his youth. I looked through the other pictures in the wallet. There was a picture of him with another man and they were kissing. Underneath, there was a caption of Ben and Ty forever. I walked out of the basement and looked outside to find Tyrone. I must have found what he was looking for because it was gone. In the days that followed, we were able to do miraculous things that at the beginning of the case we didn't think were possible. Fingerprints identified a man named Frederick Gaines as the wielder of the axe. He was brought in for questioning. He confessed to torturing him with the jumper cables, carving into him with the soldering iron, raping him repeatedly, and murdering Tyrone. He said he did it along with three other highly intoxicated men. Figures they would blame the drugs. The Satan worship was a red herring, just like I said it was. They wanted to make it look like some crazy ritual had happened to kill poor Tyrone. It was a ritual, all right, but not to an infernal entity in the broader sense. We were finally able to contact Ben Langley, a contractor from Towson who was Tyrone's lover, and from what he had told us, a soon-to-be husband. And that didn't go over too well. Ben became a bawling mess after we revealed what happened to Tyrone. He was glad justice was found for his love, but heartbroken nonetheless. Now, that was the part that could be explained. There are more that can't. I got a phone call from the coroner's office stating that they found Tyrone's body back in the morgue, right where it was supposed to be two days later. It disappeared and reappeared within a span of a week. Same situation also, and that there was no camera footage, and no one came in or out of that room. The next morning I woke up and went into my bathroom to get ready for work, and I was gifted with the sight of a message smeared with blood on my bathroom mirror. I give credit where credit is due. At first I thought this had come from Tyrone, and felt glad that he valued my work. But I got a different vibe from this. It was then that I realized who exactly sent this message. The devil himself had to clear his own name and helped bring Gaines and his asshole friends to justice. This was his way of telling me that even the Prince of Darkness, the cause of all evil in the world, didn't do this Dark particular sin. Noxo.
The Case Files of Joshua Chambers. A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Episode 2, Danse Macabre. Maryland. Whoever thought to build a settlement, let alone a city in the midst of a hot, sticky cesspool of swampy filth, was a good idea, was an absolute lunatic. Yet, this is my home. It's been my home all my life. Being a police detective is hard in the summertime, and the dress code isn't always the culprit. Bodies decay quicker, blood and tempers run red, and work gets harder for those who try to stop bad things from happening. This is going to be one of those days. Detective Karen Long informed me of a body found in the dilapidated Mount Auburn Cemetery. I arrived at the scene about 20 minutes later. It was hot, sweltering, and the air quality was really poor. As I instantly left my cool air-conditioned car, I entered what I felt to be a blast furnace. Within seconds, a waterfall of sweat sprang from my brow. My partner, Detective Long, gave me a knowing smile and pointed down at the corpse. <sighs> she seems to have it better than us at the moment, Lieutenant. She can't feel this heat anymore. I gazed up at my partner. That remains to be seen. Give me what you got. Karen peeled through the moist pages to get to the previous work. African-American woman, appearing to be in her late 30s. Bullet wound to the center of her forehead. She has no identification on her, no wallet, no money. I marveled at how well put together the woman was. Is she a prostitute? If that's the case, she's a high-end one. Her teeth are immaculate and she has no blemishes. There are some strange markings once more. Dear God, not another ritual killing. I'm still not over Tyrone children. <laughs> Relax, Josh. These markings are tattoos. Two of them. Uh, one on the high right breast and the other on the left wrist. I bent over to inspect the tattoos. They were easy to see, since the shirt the poor woman was wearing was shredded like she was in a trash compactor. Her skirt, which didn't have much material to begin with, was in strips as well. When the hell happened to her shirt? Freddy fucking Krueger? I said. Shredded. There are no cuts, however, on the body. It, it's the strangest thing. There's only the bullet hole to the head. I stood back up and looked at the positioning of the body. I don't think she was killed here. There's not enough blood where the wound would be in the vicinity. She had to have been killed elsewhere and then moved. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I bent back over and pulled open my kit. My bag of goodies, as I've been calling it as of late. I ran out of Noxo three days ago when I was waiting for the precinct to get a new shipment. Damn. You have any Noxo, I'm out, I asked Karen. Karen pulled a canister out of the back of her black pants and threw it at me. Knock yourself out. Glad you turned me on to that stuff. I'd have been in serious trouble coming out of narcotics. I applied the Noxo and dove for my gloves in the bag. The neoprene gloves went on tightly as the sweat pulled every arm here in vengeance for the heat. I winced as I finished pulling them on out of necessity. <laughs> Careful. You still want hair on your hands and arms, right? Very cute, Detective. It ain't my fault that we live in a swampland. I muttered to her. I grabbed some gauze and two cotton swabs. I took two samples of dried but fried blood 
and put them in small medicine beakers. I used the gauze to wipe the residual away from the tattoo. The one on the breast said, BGF. <sighs> Great. Might be Black Gorilla Family. If that's the case, we have a whole new ball of wax. I went to her hands. The other tattoo was just a name, James. Might have been a lover or a child or someone else. Record the name James. We're going to need to know who that is. Next, I focused on her hands themselves. They were blood-stained, and there was a residue underneath her well-manicured nails. Such a shame her nails looked good. I took a pair of tweezers and scraped some residue off into another beaker. Sweat stung my eyes fiercely. I used my arm to wipe it. It was no use. Without a word, Karen wiped my eyes with another pair of gauze. I turned my attention to her. You didn't have to do that, but thanks. Oh, don't mention it. I'm not a fan of having evidence contaminated by sweat. We must have been unnerving the coroner crew because they stared at us like our heads were cut off. My smile disappeared as we went back to work. She was propped up against a gravestone. It had to have been put there fairly recently because it still looked great compared to the others that were fossils of their former selves. I looked at the name on the gravestone. Henry J. Johnson, who was born in 1960 and died three years ago. Why is this an issue? This could just be random body placement. I shook my head. If it was a random body placement, why did they make sure that the name of the person beneath was for all the world to see? I made a note to find in my journal. Once we gathered all the evidence we could find, the coroner did the rest. Forensics would analyze the data and would go from there. Three days later, I walked into the forensics office to see what was going on. The chief forensic specialist, Dr. Guff, pulled me aside. You're starting to get a reputation, Lieutenant Chambers. I thought at first he was just joking about the Childress case, but he pointed to new evidence. And what now? From the dental records, we found out the identity of the woman is Daisy Jo Johnson. Daisy Jo Johnson. Who was her father? You like this. One Henry J. Johnson. It didn't surprise me at all. This could have very well been a vengeance killing. Uh, the gravestone she was found at was her father's. Yep, but that's not the strange part. What is the strange part? Dr. Guff looked at the results. He stared back up at me with a grim look on his face. You might want to sit down for this. <sighs> he made me feel as though he was going to tell me I had two weeks to live. Normally he wouldn't go this dramatic. But if he wanted me to sit down, I guess I was going to sit down. He showed me the report on Miss Johnson. I started to read. The body was void of most of its blood before it was found in the cemetery. The bullet hole showed up several hours after the corpse had died. After she died? What killed her then? She bled out at a different location. The bullet hole came in after she was already dead. Continue reading, Lieutenant. I did. The DNA found under her nails was linked to James Underhill. What's so suspicious about that? At least now I think I can pinpoint other parts of the case, Dr. Guff, I said. Okay, well, uh, tell me what you think. The doctor was humoring me. That pissed me off a little. James Underhill is the James on her wrist. Most likely he had ties to Black Gorilla family and this is what got her killed. Dr. Guff pointed at the paperwork. James Underhill has been dead for five years. How is it possible that she was able to scratch a man who has been dead since 2014? 
And what's worse, how is Daisy Jo Johnson even alive to receive this treatment in the first place? Her skin looked immaculate, but as well as her teeth, but her inner organs were not so glamorous. They literally belonged to the body of an 80-year-old. I shook my head in disbelief. So Daisy Jo Johnson was at least 80 years old? I leaned back in the chair and pondered. That means Henry wasn't her father. Henry was her son, I said, thinking out loud. If I believed vampires exist, which I don't, mind you, this shit would definitely make me think twice. I stood up and started pacing the floor. I said, So you mean to tell me that James Underhill, who's been dead for five years, got into an altercation with Daisy Jo Johnson who looked in her 30s but was really in her late 80s. And this ended up with Daisy Joe even more dead in front of Henry Johnson's grave. Daisy takes a bullet to kill her in the forehead, but she was already dead anyway, and now James Underhill, who is supposed to be dead and might actually still be dead, is walking free. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't explain anything, does it? I walked out of the office. I couldn't take it anymore. But the facts were facts. I needed to find out more answers, and I'm pretty sure that this time Tyrone Childress wasn't going to come back to help me get them. I met up with Karen at lunch and told her everything Dr. Guff said to me. She was speechless for the first ten minutes. You okay? You haven't said anything, I said to her. <laughs> and I thought Baltimore had problems before! She laughed. This wasn't the laugh of someone who found hilarity in something crazy or something random. This was the laugh of someone who chose to laugh rather than cry. Frustration came over her face after her laughing fit ceased. Oh, you can't bring in a corpse, Josh. How does that make any goddamn sense? I leaned back in the seat. Maybe that's the problem. It's not supposed to make any damn sense. This city is damned. So what's next in the investigation? We can't very well bring a dead man into the precinct and book them for killing an already dead girl. That's literal dance macabre. Dance... Macabre, I said, noting the irony of the situation in my head. The dance of death. I pulled out a folder and said, As for what's next, this is the last living relative of Daisy Joe and Henry. I think maybe they could give us some answers, if not insight, on what was going on with them. Several hours later, I pulled up to a rundown row home in Westport. This wasn't very far from the graveyard. I sat in the car a good long while, thinking about the whole mess that was this case. I left Karen back at the precinct to take care of some paperwork, but informed her that if I needed her, I would call. Had I stumbled into a crazy world of the unknown? If so, when did this happen? I don't think I saw a white rabbit, and deliberately decided to follow him to a strange new world. It's already hard being a middle-aged detective in Baltimore, Maryland. I didn't need another log on the fire. A pit pole barked fiercely as I exited my car and walked to the fence. Seconds later, an old black woman came from inside the house and looked at me strangely. Oh, you obviously a cop. You were just too fine to be some kind of thug from around here. I noted the Baltimore backhanded compliment, but ignored it. Baltimore Police, Lieutenant Joshua Chambers, Detective Homicide Division. I need to speak to Louise Johnson. Her eyes widened. Well, all right then. 
She moved her attention into the house and yelled inside. Bobby! Come and get Charlie! My grandson's coming to get the dog. I'm Louise Johnson. Since we put the dog away, you can come inside now. It's safe. Bring your ass. Come on. Just from visual analysis, I could tell the poor woman has had a pretty shitty life. Not that it was her fault either, but it happened to her nonetheless. Ten minutes later, I walked into the home. It was a vast difference from the appearance on the outside. She kept this place neat, clean, and well put together. She must have noticed my thoughts. Oh, it sure is easy to keep my outside looking like garbage. It's a form of a theft deterrent, if you will. People walk by, they see that I ain't got nothing outside and looks trashy, and then I got three deadbolts and be a big-ass dog inside. Yeah, you seem to have some answers for life's biggest questions, Mrs. Johnson, I said. She walked me over to a nice plush couch in the living room. She motioned me to have a seat. Now, how might I be in service to you, sir? I took a deep breath, knowing what I was going to tell her and asking her would probably give this woman a heart attack. But I needed answers anyway. <clears throat> Mrs. Johnson, I pulled out Polaroids that were taken at the scene. Do you know who this woman is? I've never seen a black woman turn white before, but I could swear it, it happened with Mrs. Johnson. That's my sister. But that's impossible. When was this picture taken? A week ago. She was found at the That is impossible. She died in 1977. Henry, he's her son. He only died three years ago. I'm telling you, this is impossible. What you are trying to say to me cannot happen. It is impossible. I pointed to the Polaroids. Are you absolutely sure that this woman in these photos is Daisy Johnson? She looked up at me like I was stupid. I think I would know my own sister if I saw her. I put the photos back in the folder. <clears throat> what do you know of her connections to the Black Gorilla family? She leaned over in the chair and put her hands on her head. Her eyes were shut, as if she were contemplating something. She then looked back up at me as tears strolled down her face. I'll tell you all that I know, but if it comes out that you said to somebody that it was me that told you, I'm certainly a dead woman. And if I'm a dead woman, what's my grandson gonna do? I'm the only family he's got left. I sensed the pain from her and reassured her as best I could. You will remain an anonymous source, I promise you. She sighed and sat back in her chair. Daisy met James Underhill and must have been 1975. She was 34, 35, 36, something like that, I think. He ran the BGF after a long stint in the slammer. He was incarcerated. And so the gang had influence over him, and eventually her also, when James got out. My mama, God rest her precious soul, warned her repeatedly about him. She told her to leave his sorry ass while she still could, and Daisy wasn't necessarily the most pious of people. She conceived Henry out of wedlock. He was the best. And after her death, Henry come to live with me. That poor boy was 12 years old when she died. James never had any contact with us. He's a deadbeat piece of shit. And from what I heard from people who are close to him, he had an affinity for the occult. This piqued my interest. The occult? What do you mean? He was a devil worshiper or something? Underhill was fascinated by voodoo or hoodoo or something. Stories of ghosts, the dead, 
rituals to bring people back to life and such. He was the closet necromancer in that hood society he was in. It freaked a lot of people out. Especially freaked me out. Especially the BGF. So he kept it hidden. But that stuff's bullshit. There's no way that is remotely possible, I said. Then I remembered Tyrone Childress. I remembered the results of the autopsy and the fact that two dead people having a fight also seemed impossible as well. How could something like this be so scientifically proven? She smirked as if I was a child that didn't know. Oh, child. This is the only thing that seems to make sense now, especially after all those photos you showed me. Anyways, Daisy died in 1977. A couple of years passed. I started to see that piece of shit James in the neighborhood with a woman that looked a hell of a lot like my dead sister. She was flush. She was flush. She didn't walk around like a zombie or anything. Maybe I, maybe I was just mistaken. But looking back now, it sure do make a lot of sense. Shortly after, I have a Henry coming in my room at night saying to me that he keeps seeing his old mama watching over him at night like she's watching him from this window. Lieutenant, his bedroom is on the second floor. You said she died in 1977. Uh, how come we don't have a record of her death on file? The only death certificate is the one we found most recently, and this had Henry marked as her father, not her son. There are people everywhere that can make things look different or make them disappear. It looks like a cover-up to me. It certainly do. Continuing your story, Miss Johnson, I asked, riveted in my seat. Dear God, James died in 2014, and that is just plain the last I've ever saw of him. Henry died soon after, but he said something strange to me while he was on his deathbed. He said, Mama come to see me. She still loves me. I don't know what to make out of that. Other than that... Had to be that medication to making him seeing some stuff or something, I don't know. I'm not sure. Daisy had Underhill's DNA under her fingernails before we found her. It was like they found each other, had an argument, and James put a bullet in her head. She closed her eyes. <laughs> Two dead people arguing? That's not like how it is in the movies. Daisy was devoid of blood. She might have been a vampire. Vampire? Would a bullet to the head kill a vampire? I thought that worked on zombies. I shook my head. I don't know anymore. This whole year has been very strange for me. I'm sorry to take up your time, Mrs. Johnson. I stood up to leave, but Mrs. Johnson stopped me. Child, what you gonna do next? Almost on cue, my cell phone went off. I looked at Mrs. Johnson. I'm gonna see what I can find out further. I might give you a call if I need anything else. I'll let myself out. I walked out of the house and down the steps as I answered the phone. Lieutenant Chambers. Josh, you need to come to the precinct. What's going on? Are you okay? No, Josh, I'm not. The body, the evidence, all of our work on Daisy Johnson is gone. What did Dr. Guff say? Dr. Guff is... I lost her. There was a disconnect on the line. I redialed her and went straight to voicemail. I hung up and dialed again. No answer. I got back to the precinct to find Dr. Guff. He didn't remember the conversation we had, nor did he remember the woman on the slab we talked about. All of the evidence, except for what I took with me to Mrs. Johnson's house, was gone. Poofed away like it was a cloud. 
I went to find Karen. She was drinking coffee at her desk like nothing had happened. I explained that she called me in a panic, and she told me the same thing Guff did. They didn't know what I was talking about. My commanding officer, Captain Graff, suggested I take some time off to recuperate. I had been stressed out lately because of the Childress case. This was bullshit. It was a cover-up and I knew it. My feeling is that he's in on it too. How far does this shit go in the bureaucracy? Mrs. Johnson was right all along. I wasn't going to be a moron and let them know that I knew what they were doing. I was going to buy my time. But trust me, if at some point in my life, I will find out what's really going on in Baltimore. Even if it kills me. Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Episode 3 El Paso de Morte The sun greeted me like an insane Osiris as I groaned helplessly. Peeking through the window, it tried with reckless abandon to pierce my eyes with its warmth and bright goodness. I wasn't in the mood for warmth and bright goodness today. In fact, I didn't even feel like leaving my home. I had been put on administrative leave for three months from what happened with the Tyrone Childress case, but I was surely aware it was for something more sinister. I stumbled upon the body of Daisy Joe Johnson, and I believe that I shouldn't have. Someone dropped the ball in the situation, and Karen and I picked it up. I hid the evidence I had on Daisy Joe Johnson under the mattress of my bed. No one from the precinct knew otherwise. Even Karen should have remembered everything that had happened. She was there. It was as if they erased her fucking mind of the whole thing. Even Dr. Guff had the same issue. They didn't remember anything. Whoever was supposed to cover up Daisy's murder made sure that all had their minds erased, except mine. They could use that to discredit me later on. Wouldn't they just send someone to wipe my mind, too? It didn't make any sense to... My doorbell rang. I wiped the sleep out of my eyes and sat up in bed. I put on a pair of jogging pants and walked down my wooden steps. Fuck a shirt. I didn't care at this point. I didn't even have a chance to make a coffee yet to be wonderful to the world. I looked through the eye hole as to who was there. Standing there was a gaunt man with spectacles, and he was dressed in a black suit. man could have been a mortician, for all I knew. I had never seen this guy before in my life. I opened the door slightly, still keeping the chain on the lock. Can I help you? Lieutenant Chambers... My name is Vern Garvey, and I'm from Internal Affairs. We would like to have a word with you. I chuckled. We? You're the only one here. Couldn't this have waited until later? It's barely seven o'clock in the morning. Garvey looked at a watch. As a representative of the agency, we have other priorities that we need to take care of later on. My need for a conversation with you is important. It was as if this dude was trying to pierce a hole into my soul with his crazed-looking eyes. 
May I come in? I was befuddled as this dew was paler than the IPA I drank last night. It didn't help that on the side of the house where my front door is located, there is not much sunlight in the morning. So it didn't help his case of not looking creepy. I thought quickly, now let me finish getting dressed and then I'll let you in. I closed my door and ran up the wooden stairs. This was it. This was the moment I was waiting for three months to happen. They were here to wipe my memory. Or worse. I pulled on the Baltimore Ravens t-shirt I received from my father from Christmas and pulled my 9mm Beretta from my holster and put it in my waistband of the pants I was wearing. I was going to be prepared as much as I could. Moments later, I led him into my living room. Once inside my house, I noticed a smell that disturbed me. I couldn't quite place it early in the morning, but it made me very uneasy. As I smelled more of it, I realized it was coming from Garvey. When he sat down, Mr. Garvey opened his briefcase. I sat across from him, gauging his reaction. He had an awkward demeanor about him, like he really wasn't there at all, mentally or physically. He displayed no emotion, but he just stared at me like I was a fly on flypaper. Curious, maybe, but unnerving nonetheless. I thought him a walking mannequin until Garvey finally addressed me. You were put on administrative leave because of your recent interaction with the Tyrone Childress case. Garvey smirked as if he knew my dirty secret. We know about Daisy Johnson, Lieutenant. I needed to brief you on that case. Before he put his hand into his briefcase, I had my hand on my pistol. I didn't pull it out yet, but I had a funny feeling that I needed it ready. It was time that I played my hand. <laughs> Debrief me, like you did with Karen and Dr. Guff? Lieutenant. Garvey tried to cut me off as he pulled a strange device out of his briefcase. At first, I thought it was a weird pen, but I was sorely mistaken. I had to act quickly. Listen... I know what happened, and I know what I saw. We know, and that is the reason why we need to talk to you about this and your need to keep it secret. He opened up the pen device, and inside was what looked like a lighter. He pressed the button, and a strange buzzing sound came out of it. I was able to ignore it. Keep this secret? You can't tell me this is some government cover-up. Even if it was, there's nothing you can do about it. What happened on the date in question had nothing to do with a real case. It was just a false report. I realized what he was doing. He was trying to hypnotize me. The buzzing sound, trying to supplant memories. I pulled my pistol and said, I know what you're doing. Get out of my house. Lieutenant, you don't want to do this. Don't I? Because right now, even if I were to have booked you myself on obstruction of justice, you probably would get away scot-free. What's to stop me from contacting the feds on this? He leaned over as if reiterating his position. Lieutenant, if we have our clutches in your puny police district, what makes you think we don't have a bigger presence elsewhere? We have to keep all of our activities in check, don't you agree? I slid the chamber of the pistol. Get out of my house. Now. He had a funny reaction. Not funny haha, but funny strange. Garvey didn't put his hands up in defense, or to say that he surrendered or anything. He stared at me as if I had a marshmallow gun in my hands instead of a genuinely lethal weapon. Lieutenant Chambers, I will leave. 
but I want to let you know that this will not be the last you see of me. He pulled off his eyeglasses as he turned off the machine and put it in his briefcase. Closing his briefcase, he walked to the door and looked back toward me. Have a good day, Lieutenant. He walked out. I should have shot his ass when I had the chance, but I had a strange feeling that it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. I locked the door behind him and tears came down my cheeks as the adrenaline evaporated from my body. I slid down the door and put my hands on my face, sobbing like a baby. Hours later, I visited Louise Johnson again. This time the dog wasn't in the front yard. I knocked loudly on the front door. Lieutenant Chambers? Yes, Mrs. Johnson. May I please come in? A look of concern came over her face as she stared at me for several seconds. But to my soul, it felt like hours. Come on, child. You look terrible. It's like the devil done shit in your shoe or something. I walked inside, and once again, the inside of her place looked immaculate. She led me into the living area, and I sat down. Are you all right, child? What's the matter? I kept staring, and I paced the floor. No, no. I'm not okay. Does this have something to do with why you came here a couple months ago? I stared at her. You're damn right it does. I told her the entire story. Every bit of it. I left nothing out and told her that the reason I didn't come to her sooner was because I valued her safety and the safety of her grandchild. Are you sure you wouldn't follow back here? Did you look? Did you see anybody following you? <laughs> Mrs. Johnson, I made sure I took a path so random that I wasn't sure that I could have even followed myself. Child, may I just call you Joshua, please? I nodded like I had no care in the world. But Mrs. Johnson had a way of comforting me at this point that always reminded me of my own grandmother. I guess it's a talent given to the best of them. She stood up and walked to an old wooden bureau in her dining room and opened a drawer. She pulled out what I thought was a small black-covered Gideon Bible. She handed it to me. Open it, Joshua. This might be the help you need. There was no writing on the front, but I was pretty sure it was a Bible. I opened it, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Inside were instructions to be followed to the letter. What is this? This is your key to get to safety, child. My home's alright, but I'm pretty sure yours puts you straight in danger, boy. I noticed some of the words in the instruction looked to be in Hebrew script. Is this Kabbalah or something? That was given to me back by a friend when I told him of what happened after I saw Daisy. He said that performing a ritual would save my house from whatever evil was there. And damn if he wasn't right. Where's your friend? Can I meet with him? She shook her head in sadness. He passed away a year ago. He was killed outside his home in Greektown. During a time where all the homeless people were getting killed at random. He had protective wards all over his home and outside. But when you leave your house, well, that just opens you up to danger. I remember last year. We were tracking that motherfucker for months. None of us got a lead on who was doing it. And all of a sudden it stopped. The precincts kept a lookout for something like that to happen again, but it never did. There was a rumor that went around that they finally found the guy who did it. 
uh, that he was found dead at Fort McHenry, but that wasn't for sure. Rumors are like molecules in the police field. They're everywhere. I closed the book. Is there anyone else that can help me in this situation? My friend Carmine, the one that I had mentioned, had friends that dealt with this peculiar situation. They're very old men, though. I doubt any of them are still alive, but Carmine did say to me that at one point, if ever got into trouble with Daisy, to come straight to the shot tower. I looked at her confused. The Baltimore shot tower? That very same shot tower. How could a Baltimore landmark like that have any significance to what the hell was going on with the conspiracy? I had a feeling that dealing with the FBI or the CIA would not give me proper help. But going to what I felt were ancient landmarks seemed absurd. Why there? I asked. I don't know. I've never needed to even go there. Hell, this was almost 40 years ago. There might not be anything to do with it. At least not anymore. After I left Mrs. Johnson, I decided to make my way to the shot tower on a lark. I didn't plan to find anything, but Mrs. Johnson's story intrigued me. I went to the old cop shop nearby and parked my car. I walked north on North Front Street until I saw the tower. They called it the Phoenix Tower, but not many people knew that that was its name. People just called it the Old Baltimore Shot Tower. I took a seat at the park and stared at it intently. I didn't know what I was planning or happening, but I stayed on an old bench watching the tower as if it were going to do a magic trick or something. East Baltimore wasn't a neighborhood that I was used to, but I knew my way around. As I peered around, I saw all kinds of people. The sick, the poor, the wealthy, the downtrodden, and myself. I wondered what type of world I lived in where something like this could happen. I knew it was a cold world. I knew that the level of apathy was heinously large. But to see this slithering underworld now in front of me, I wasn't sure if my mind could keep what I saw in perspective. By the time I realized nothing was going to happen, which was at least two hours, I decided to walk back to my car. After buying some essentials at the cop store and getting a bite to eat at Jimmy's famous seafood, it was time to head home. The sun was going down and I needed to make sure that my house was protected. I pulled up to my house, turned off my car, and stared at my home for a moment. I loved my home. I worked hard to get there. But is it really something I need to do in putting mystical wards on my home, like I'm some sort of conspiracy theorist or nut job? I got out of my car and walked up my gorgeous flight of stairs, only to see that my front door was already open. I grabbed my pepper spray out of the bag I got from the cop shop and opened it up. I pulled my Beretta from my pocket and held it in the other hand. I walked inside trying to be as silent as possible. I saw out of the corner of my eye a shadow lurking. I pointed my gun at the shadow. Hands where I can see them. You picked the wrong house, motherfucker. The lights came on in the living room. It was Vern Garvey. I told you I would see you again. My door slammed behind me, and before I knew it, I was tackled to the ground. I couldn't see who was behind me, but they were very strong. I felt knives come across my back, but my heavier coat seemed to block most of the slashes. I was able to turn around finally to find out who was attacking me. It was the coroners that worked on the case from months ago. It was them, but they looked off. 
Their mouths opened up to reveal sharp teeth, almost like a shark, and their fingers were pointed to claws. I realized that what was going down my back were not knives at all, but claws. I lifted my gun and fired at them. Bullets sunk into their flesh. They seemed not to be phased one bit. I then used a pepper spray to get them in the eyes so I could get up from the floor. When I got to my knees, I saw the two coroners still fighting the effects of the pepper spray. I turned my attention toward Garvey, but he had already got off of my couch and headed toward me. I punched him in the face, but it felt like I was hitting a stern punching bag. My hand hurt like hell. I raised my gun to fire, but Garvey was way faster than I thought he would be, and knocked my barrette out of my grip. You could have had it easy, Chambers. You could have just taken to not remembering and led yourself a decent life. <laughs> now... He grabbed a hold of my head like it was a watermelon. I knew he was going to break my neck. I could feel the two corners slashing up my legs with their claws. I pepper sprayed Garvey in the face, but he still held me <sighs> as if he had my head in a vice. Get off of him, you lousy sack of shit! A voice came from outside my door. I didn't know who it was, but I felt the splatter of blood on my face as a loud bang came from outside. The vice that was Garvey's grip loosened, and I opened my eyes to see that there was a black woman I had never met standing over the orderlies. She had beheaded one of them with a large machete and proceeded to go after the other. I was mortified. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I turned my attention back toward Garvey, and I saw that there was a bullet hole in his head much like that of Daisy Johnson. But Garvey was still alive. Stunned, but still alive, and that worried me. I jumped to my feet and slammed into the couch to get him out of the way. I dove into his briefcase, which was nearby. The woman who came to save me looked at me curiously. What are you doing? Let me just put another bullet in him and get the hell out of here. You ever heard of the double tap? Best way to go. I looked at her closer. She was dressed in black pants that looked like special ops fatigues, but wore a Batman t-shirt. She was light mocha colored, and her hair looked too good to be anything but natural. In her hand was a forty-four Magnum. I shook my head in disbelief at the entire situation and looked for the pen thing again. I can never go back to work if I can't wipe this dude's memory. You're not going to be able to. Just kill him and move on. I looked at her dead in the eyes. I didn't go through the bullshit of becoming a lieutenant in the Baltimore Police Department only to lose it because of this asshole. He is IAB. In the middle of our conversation, I noticed that one of the coroners were coming up from behind the woman. She didn't seem to flinch she turned around and sliced the head off of the last one clean off. The sound was almost sickening as my stomach lurched into my throat. Okay, Lieutenant. What do we need to try? We don't have much time. The gunshots are a bound to alert the neighbors. Are you kidding? This is Baltimore. Gunshots are like the sounds of birds singing. Very rarely does someone nowadays call the cops. They will if they think a cop's in trouble. How well do you know your neighbors? Digging through his briefcase, I'd found the pen device. Finally. I opened it just like he did when he was sitting with me. <sighs> what? Garvey's blood, which was blackish in color, dripped from the wound. I turned on the buzzing thing. You will have been successful in wiping my mind from the Johnson case. I would be another success story in your cover-up, and I could go back to work whenever ready. The buzzing device seemed to actually be working on Garvey. While digging through the suitcase, I found a pair of translucent earplugs. My will was strong, 
but apparently Garvey needed extra protection. He wasn't prepared for this. I was successful. The bullet that was in his head came out. His wound began to heal before my eyes, which freaked me out, but didn't deter me from my mission. I continued. Your two coroner cohorts were killed by a random act of violence. No one was really responsible. No one responsible. Now, when I count to three, you will not remember coming back here except for this morning. You will get into your car, leave this place, and you will go about your everyday business with the new information I have just given you. Do you understand? I... I understand. One, two, three. I counted as he then stood up like a robot and walked out of my house with nothing on him. I kept his briefcase and the buzzing pen thing. As soon as he left, I turned it off. You know you got downplayed, right? I'm not so sure. By the way, I don't want to seem ungrateful because I am the furthest thing from that at the moment, but who the hell are you and how did you know I needed help? My name's Calliope Montrego. We were watching you when you came from the tower today. You watched me from the tower? You obviously came here looking for someone. No one just goes to the park and stares at that tower the way that you did for no reason at all. She had caught me. You got me, Miss Matranga. She pointed to the door. You can come with me and we can discuss what's been going on. I can get a cleanup crew here to clean up this mess. I interrupted her. Cleanup crew? Lieutenant, in a world of things that go bump in the night, we just started having things come under control. Now, are you coming or not? How could I say no to that? Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Episode 4 my brother's keeper. Sweet Jesus, what did I get myself into? There was a lair built beneath the shot tower. That was the missing piece I couldn't get from Mrs. Johnson. Obviously because she didn't know, but there are people who have hid themselves away from those that would do humanity harm and have done so down here in this inconspicuous of places. Her friend was one of these special people. The lair was huge and cut with several shelves with books. Fuck, I would even call them tomes, of various ages, shapes, and sizes adorning the walls. On other shelves were relics, weapons, and even body parts. That made me nervous. The smell of the place was a mixture of the ancient tomes, leather, and the perfume from the women I had accompanied there. I sat warily at a large rectangular granite table. On the left side of me was the black woman that rescued me from Vern Garvey, Calliope Mantranga. Matranga. There's no enemy. Calliope Matranga. She was over five feet tall and was light-colored. Part of me wondered if she was mixed, but I wasn't going to ask her that question just yet. On the other side of me was another older Jewish woman with brown and silver hair. She was older, but she looked like she took care of herself quite well. The only way I knew she was Jewish was because she wore a Star of David around her neck. 
They both sat in their respective seats and stared at me quizzically. It was like I was a porterhouse on a menu. Me being single, I didn't mind the attention, but this was too strange for me to get excited. I didn't know what to say at this point. The tension was too much, but I knew that these women might be able to help me. So, Calliope pointed at me with a long chocolate brown. We could use you, if this works. Confused. If what works? The stunt you pulled at your house. If you were able to convince the disciple in forgetting what you did. What disciple? Like Jesus or something? She ignored me. And go back to work. You can provide valuable information to the keepers. Hell, we've been keeping an eye on you since we heard about Tyrone Childress. This brought me a bit of alarm. I never told a soul about him leading me to the house on Winchester Street. I never told anyone that he was the main reason I actually solved his murder. How did they know? I've never told anyone about Tyrone Childress, I said in an accusatory manner. But here we are. We know the devil sent you a message. I stood up and pointed at her. How do you know that? I told no one. Are you spying on me? Calliope tried to calm me down, but it wasn't working. We had an elevation of supernatural energy at your home during the night in question. We have sources that help out every now and again. They give us information. This began to unnerve me further. Nuh-uh. This is too fucking weird. I thought you two could help me. And we can, Lieutenant Chambers. The Keepers are willing to assist you. I turned toward the Jewish woman. The Keepers? Is that what you two are? And what disciple are you referring to? The Keepers are a reference to the Torah or the Old Testament of the Bible. God called out to Cain and asked where his brother was, knowing that Cain had already killed his brother. His reply was asking the Lord of all creation, Am I my brother's keeper? We are the counterbalance to Cain's forces here on Earth. We are a part of a network all over the globe. It's not just us two. If that's what you're thinking, it's not just us two. Our ranks have grown thin, and we could definitely use someone like you. The being you came across, the one you call Vern Garvey, was a member of the Crimson Legacy, and I am certain is a lesser disciple of Cain himself. He was trying to make sure you forgot what happened to Daisy Joe Johnson. I was not really a religious man, but as the past several months, my agnostic nature was severely tested. Cain. Yes, Cain. World's first murderer. Like, he exists. I know religion nowadays is marginalized and scoffed at, but what? You thought these were just stories? Just random fucking folklore? She was getting defensive, as if I called her out on something. Hey, I didn't mean... I tried to respond. That was like putting gasoline on fire. Take it easy, Sheila. He doesn't know. He's new to our world. No, Callie, I am not taking it easy. In fact, this is getting old real quick. Sometimes the stories are real, sir. Sometimes stories bite you in the face, leave you scarred, and become nightmares. I know Kane is real. I know he is real because the fucker raped me almost a year ago. I have my scars, mental and physical, Lieutenant, so I get a little agitated when people don't believe. She lifted her shirt for me to see the claw marks that it healed. Left a lasting impression. Maybe one day this will happen to you, and you can't deny it anymore. I had to sit down. I didn't want this woman to feel even more threatened than she already felt. I... I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't know. You could clearly see the woman had something serious happen to her. 
I needed to diffuse the situation. <clears throat> but I have seen things in the past four months, especially today, that I cannot understand or explain. Maybe I wasn't meant to. Garvey had a bullet in his brain, his fucking brain, and shrugged it off like she shot him with a marshmallow and gun instead of a 44 Magnum. If I didn't believe before, I'm pretty sure I believe things now. And as my time in this world progresses, I'm pretty sure that I will see more shit that will make me question everything I've ever believed in. She sat down and crossed her arms, as if I placated her to satisfaction. Why am I here? I asked. I think it's pretty much self-explanatory why you're here. You needed us. <laughs> I'm starting to think I need this whole goddamn National Guard. But why am I here? She leaned in. Because we need eyes and ears in the Baltimore Police Department. And you look like the kind of guy that can provide us with that information. You seem to be a magnet for paranormal and supernatural activity. You can even be a valuable asset to our organization. We need you. Look, I just want to go back to my normal life. I didn't want any of this shit. Do you know how hard it is to be a black police detective? Now... Add this to the list and my life has become basically forfeit. You are a man that values the truth. That's why you investigated the murders. That's why you are a viable threat to them. Calliope grabbed my hand. It kind of threw me off. It felt comforting. I want you to know that you don't even have to join us full time. Hell, don't join us at all if you want. All we want is a phone call or a text if you find out anything peculiar. Just give us the information we need. Where is heaven? I see a lot of hell here in Baltimore, but where are the forces of heaven? I had to ask the question that was on my mind. One that I was afraid to know the answer to. If there was all this evil in the world, where was the good? That was a question I don't think for all of their confidence were fully prepared to answer. Calliope just looked at the table. Well, heaven's agenda sometimes doesn't include humanity. And and what it does to them. And that's why we exist. Thoughts drifted to some place that made me feel sad looking at her. She focused herself and stood up from the table. Now you're home. When you return, will have already thoroughly been cleaned. Wards placed all around your home to ensure that this will never happen again. Here's my telephone number. Call or text us if you make your decision. I left the briefcase Garvey had with him to them. They would know better what to do with it, as well as the buzzing machine. I didn't need that anymore. I left the tower with the strangest feeling ever. It was like when I finally got out of the academy. I felt that maybe, with this newfound knowledge, I could make a difference in this world. It was strange, but empowering. When I got to my home, to my surprise, Calliope was absolutely right. Not a spot of blood and not an instance of them ever having been there were present. I noticed small carvings on the windows and doors of the house. I felt an air of comfort that I hadn't felt in a long time. Was this all a nightmare? I couldn't wait to get into my bed and find out. The next morning I woke up to the sound of my cell phone ringing. The sun had not yet risen, but I was used to getting up earlier than normal. Hello, I answered. Hello, Lieutenant Chambers. Yeah, this is Captain Graff. 
I'd like to see you at the precinct today at 9 a.m. Uh, come dressed for work. My eyes widened as much as they could with the sleep still there. Oh, so I'm good to go. Uh, yep. Uh, IAB has confirmed you are uh, able to return to work. There's just one more preliminary meeting with, uh, with me. You're free to come back. Thank you, sir. I hung up the phone. This was going to be the true test as to whether or not I was able to get Garvey to forget. On a whim, I decided to text Calliope to let her know what had happened. She responded back with a smiley face emoji. I'm not used to that shit, but that is a product of this generation. Once I arrived at the precinct bright and early at 8.45, I was to get reacquainted with my desk. There were several cards on there. Some were sympathy cards, while others thought I was ill. Get well soon was emblazoned on them. I had to laugh. I would hold off on opening any of them as Karen Long came up behind me and gave me a hug. Oh, welcome back, Josh. Oh, sorry, Lieutenant. At first, I was jumpy for the attention, but I settled in quickly. It's nice to be back. How are you? I haven't heard from you in a while. Karen pulled away and sat down on the edge of my desk. I know, and I'm sorry. I didn't call you enough while you were gone. You know how the work is. Now you're back there with me. I shrugged. I hope so. Gotta have a meeting with Graf in about ten minutes. Hope nothing's changed. Did we get the shipment of Noxo? <laughs> Plenty. She walked away and headed back to her desk. I reminded myself of looking at her derriere might not be the proper etiquette with a partner. I couldn't help it, though. It was nice. Finally, at 8.55 a.m., I walked into Captain Graf's office. You can imagine the shock when I saw sitting down inside was Vern Garvey. I nodded to Vern and shook the hand of my captain. I tried to play it off as if nothing had happened. Captain Graf looked extremely different from the last time I saw him. He was thinner, and his hair was almost gone. I knew he was battling cancer, but he was adamant about sticking out the job. Looks like the chemotherapy was starting to take its toll. Hey, Josh. Have a seat. I took a seat, not giving a damn about the predator that was standing mere inches from me. Now, Mr. Garvey tells me you two had a very productive meeting. Uh, it's his recommendation that we put you back into the field. Garvey turned his attention toward me. The stress from the Childress case was tough, as are all the cases in regards to Baltimore detectives. But I think with the proper protocol and therapy, you'll be all right to go back into the field. I nodded. Thank you. I do have one question, though. I needed to be extremely careful of how I worded whatever he said. I needed to be believable. He adjusted the glasses on his face. Did I by chance leave my briefcase at your home? It's it's missing. I shrugged. No. No, you took it with you when you left. Uh, that's all I remember. Garvey that, stood up. That's that's what I thought. <clears throat> okay, uh, Captain Graf and Lieutenant Chambers, I will leave you two to this wonderful work day. The man, who was a predator in disguise, left as if nothing happened. I did it. I was able to erase his memory. Or he was leading me on to think that that was possible. I couldn't think about that now. Captain Graf sighed as he leaned back in his black leather chair. You know, this is killing me, Josh. Cancer isn't a joke, Mike. How are you holding up? I asked. Nah, day by day at this point. I have some good days. But uh, most of the time, 
gotten to the point I don't even want to get out of bed anymore. Take FMLA, sir. You have plenty of opportunity to do so. You don't want your health affecting your work. <laughs> no, no. Trust me. I would do it in a heartbeat if I could. Okay? <laughs> Baltimore, it, it's still going to be a war zone. Even if I die. I had a dark sense of humor, but Mike was a whole new level. What's really stopping you, Mike? Uh, well, you were just promoted to lieutenant. I don't know if you're ready to be captain yet. But I don't want anyone outside of our little clique getting my job. I know the commissioner would go off my recommendation, but... But... You... It's not an absolute... You want me to be captain? He pulled out a bottle of coke from underneath his desk. He opened it and took a drink. Once he burped, he excused himself. Excuse me. Sorry, I need the caffeine nowadays, but to answer your question... Yes. I want you to be captain. You're the best detective I have. You have all the right talents to take this job seriously, and I think you'd be fantastic. I was speechless. This wasn't something I was expecting. At least not from a man that I had valued as much as Captain Michael Graff. This was indeed a bad break for him. Cancer. He was only 48. He still had a good life in front of him after retirement, and if he would get to that point. At those plans, plans he made with his wife Connie and his sons, all of them seemed to go right out the window when he was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. I didn't want to dwell on it for much too longer. If he needed me, he obviously knew where to find me. So, uh, what is next? Do you want me to go back out into the field with Detective Long? Yeah. Now, go see if she has anything. I got up out of the chair and walked out of Graf's office. Vern Garvey was waiting for me outside. I addressed him. Mr. Garvey, can I help you? Lieutenant Chambers, I was just telling you how much of a joy it was coming to your home. He was either trying to bait me, or he was actually sincere. I had to think fast. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that, but I have to get to work. My partner's looking for me. I walked past him without a care in the world, but quick enough to know that he probably would rent me limb from limb. Uh, Lieutenant Chambers, are you sure I didn't leave my briefcase at your home? It was the darndest thing. I couldn't remember bringing it in with me back to my car, but after that I, I couldn't find it. That briefcase had some important documents as well as some personal effects inside of it. If you find it anywhere, you'd let me know, wouldn't you? I stopped and turned around, still trying to keep my masquerade in check. I'm pretty sure it's gone, but I'll keep an eye out for it. If he had the ability to detect a lie, he wouldn't get one from that quote. I knew that in the long run I was going to have to keep myself away from this guy. Problem is, if I'm going to go snooping for the keepers, I'm going to need to do it from afar, or from a safer origin point. I texted Calliope to inform her that I had made my decision. I was in. I would provide any information they needed, but so long as it didn't compromise my position. She responded with a thumbs up emoji. I was going to be aggravated with this woman. I hate emojis. Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland 
and beyond. Episode 5, Catacombs of Baltimore. The more things change, the more they stay the same. As soon as I started back with Detective Long, we were given an order to assist the Southern District with a case that was confusing the hell out of them. It was bad enough that we had our own cases to work on, but my expertise with the paranormal seemed to now spread like an infectious disease over the precincts, and now I have been asked to advise the Southern District of a situation that had happened in Fort Armistead Park. Basically, they were dubbed the Baltimore Catacombs. I remember going there as a kid, and it looked bad then. It probably looked worse now, considering that there's never been a steady mission to actually clean up the joint. Every administration I've come across ignored this park and instead focused on the other ones. I had a feeling that I was going to have to go to Hawkins Point at some point. That was the location, but not the actual case. Dispatch got an anonymous call three weeks ago from someone who had found a dead body inside of Fort Armistead. The person making the call, unknown if it was male or female, found the victim, a homeless white man intoxicated on heroin, and a woman who had a mixture of blood and urine covering her. They took samples of the fluids for DNA and took her to Cherry Hill. When the boys of the Southern District questioned her, found out her name was Annabelle Graves, she said that she was so out of it that she couldn't look at who had killed her friend and had drenched her with bodily fluids. Figures. The corpse belonged to her boyfriend, Joe Smith. That title was tentative because she knew nothing about him. The theory I got from the detectives there was that she was a prostitute, and poor Joe was a John. He had no ID. How many Joseph Smiths could there be in this world? Dental records were not reliable because he had no teeth in his mouth. Finally, we got a ding on his DNA records to identify him. He had a sample still in the database from an arrest in 2010. He was originally a patient at the Crownsville Mental Facility. I knew all about Crownsville. My father was there the last years of his life. Mental breakdown. The Crownsville Mental Hospital closed down in 2004, and Joe got shipped to Shepherd Pratt at Taylor Manor instead of Spring Grove. A year later, he disappeared off of their radar. He'd left the hospital, got hooked on heroin, and he wandered the streets homeless. Now he was dead. The body was found with several slice wounds from a knife. Seven stab wounds were counted. This sounded just like a regular homicide case. Why did they need me? An officer, Mark Sharp, who went to do another assessment of the scene, ended up disappearing. A day later, he was found dead, hanging in the catacombs upside down, and he was skinned alive with six stab wounds in his chest. The closer anyone got to the body, the more the electronics that were on their person shorted out, or went dead completely. Karen and I arrived at the park at dusk. All the people in and around the catacombs of Fort Armistead were cleared out. The state told them that it was due to a structural inspection. And that was a lie, but a constructive one. Karen got out of the car and immediately she was greeted with the smell of trash, dead fish, and cigarette smoke. Oh, oh dear God. I got out of the car, being used to the smell since I was a kid. I just shook it off. Let me guess, you don't live near the water or near an industrial area like this, huh? No. Uh, I lived in Columbia. It didn't smell like this. 
at most, we got the smell of manure on really hot days, but this is ridiculous. Every Noxo? I asked with a smirk on my face. Yeah. I turned to address her as I walked toward the path of the fort itself. It's only going to get worse. You might want to apply that now. I felt the gravel with a mix of broken glass, among other pieces of garbage and trash beneath my shoes. The crunching reminded me of eating Captain Crunch. I remember loving that cereal as a kid, but as an adult, all I thought about is cutting the roof of my mouth trying to chew. I realized after all the shit that happened this morning, I'd forgotten to eat breakfast. I knew that I was going to have to clean and buff my loafers after work, especially after walking around here. I looked at the walls of the poor fortress turned junkyard and I had to chuckle. The graffiti that was on the ramparts and the walls were covered over a billion times over from other wannabe artists who wanted to make their mark here. Enough so that there were several layers of paint. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to put their stamp on the fort themselves. The smell, which was a mixture of earth, dankness, and regret, permeated from the outside of the lower tunnels. Many a person had been caught having sex in the catacombs, or shooting up heroin, or whatever drug of choice they had. It was pathetic. What happened to this fort? And why did it go into such disrepair? She walked behind me, trying not to trip on weeds and debris. You know who Endicott is? I asked her. No. Neither do I, but apparently this place, Fort Carroll and Fort Howard on the other side of the bay, was all part of that government program. Fort Carroll? You mean the island-looking thing that's out in the middle of the bay? Yep, that's Fort Carroll. There used to be a tunnel underneath this fort to get out to supply ammunition, cannon rounds, mortars, and all kinds of stuff, just in case someone wanted to invade Baltimore again by the water. Well, what happened then? I mean, why isn't this place like Fort Meade or Aberdeen? I shrugged. It became obsolete. War changed, and how to wage it. The guns and the soldiers that were manned here were taken elsewhere. During World War II, I heard that they used this place as a storage facility. A piercing scream broke through my history lesson. It sounded like a little girl was inside the inner workings of the fort. Karen looked at me. I thought you said this area was quarantined for the investigation. I thought so too, I said as I ran inside. The screams continued, but were now mixed with crying and wailing. With the concrete walls of the catacombs the way they were, I couldn't pinpoint just where she was. If she was anywhere at all, I pointed down one end of the catacombs. Where is she? You go that way. I'll head this way. No, uh we're sticking together. But... If there is anything that goes bump in the night down there, what's a fucking 45 going to do to that? I was stunned. I thought Karen might have been spared to the horror of Vern Garby's magic pen. But I wouldn't know for sure until later. Fine! I ran down the direction of where I thought the little girl could be. I reached a room in the catacombs where I was unprepared for what I was seeing. There was a little black girl standing in a corner. She could have been no older than three or four. She had pigtails, which I thought was cute. She was crying profusely and covered with bodily fluids. Maybe it was from the victim. The reason she was crying was that a woman was laying on the debris-filled concrete in a pool of her own blood. She had been stabbed several times, but didn't have time to counter them yet. Karen went to the girl. Hey, hey, it's okay, honey. It's okay. We're police officers, okay? I squatted down and took a look at the woman. I turned toward the little girl. Baby, is this your mama? Batman came and hurt her. She won't wake up. I shook my head. Detective Long, take her outside and inform the officers out there that we need forensics in here as soon as possible. Baby, what's your name? 
Gigi. Okay, give me your hand, Gigi, and I'll get you out of here. That's what I dig about Karen. She doesn't hesitate when I give her a direct order. She was about to take the poor girl into her arms. I had to stop her. Karen, don't pick her up. She has bodily fluids on her, and you have no idea what we can get from that. The little girl followed Karen out to the room and the rest of the catacombs. This gave me time to analyze the situation. The woman on the concrete looked to be in her late 30s, African-American with dyed blonde hair and was probably about 110 pounds. Next to her was a purse that had child snacks, various important documents, cards, and money. This was not a robbery attempt. She had been stabbed with a sharp object, probably a knife, five times in the heart and chest area. The wounds were fairly fresh. The little girl saw who did this. Had to have. Minutes later, forensics came into the room. An officer was with them. Damn, Lieutenant. This room's getting a lot of use lately. I stood up and squared up. What do you mean? This is some kind of sick joke. No, no, I mean this room is where we found the other body. The one with the problem we had last time? We're starting to call this the hell room. I noticed the reason why. At the entrance to the room, someone had put a sign at the top of the entranceway saying that this was the way to hell. The forensic scientists, who were trying to add their findings on their tablets, were unable to do so. There was an electrical interference coming from the room. I looked at my cell phone, and the same thing happened. It was like a cold zone in the middle of the fort. I had to see if my new friends I had made would be able to shed some light on this. About ten minutes later, I left the fort and walked toward the parking lot area where the police had set up shop. Karen was with an ambulance crew with a little girl. She saw me coming up from the fort and asked the paramedic to watch her for a moment. Then she came running up to me. Hey, what did you find? I kept walking while I explained. Black female, aged 39, stabbed five times in the chest. She fell where she died. And there was a purse left nearby. Wallet was found in the purse and belonged to uh, Jamisha Gaffney. This little girl here is definitely her daughter. How did they get past the quarantine? I don't think they did. I think they were here before it was enforced, stuck in the catacombs. So that means... Stopped and looked her square in the eyes. It means that someone didn't do their job properly, and their fuck-up led to that little girl's mother dying. I walked up to the commanding officer of the unit that was supposed to take care of the exclusion. Who went into the tunnels to look for people? An older white police sergeant that I had never met in my life pointed toward two cops drinking coffee by a squad car. Vasquez and Jacobs went in. I knew protocol, so I addressed their sergeant personally. Those boys on your beat are the reason that this little girl is without a mother right now? You can't blame them for that. Oh, yes I can. Unless you're the one that authorized their work, then I blame you. You would have thought that I called his mother a whore. He went right back at me. They didn't even know she was down there. People hide and seek around this place all the fucking time. Exactly. They didn't check all the places where someone can hide in there. What's worse is that a maniac was also in there with them and killed this poor girl's mother. You're supposed to be Baltimore's finest. Where's your fucking dignity? You boys were either lazy or they were afraid. Either way, it doesn't cut it in our line of work. The sergeant was silent. I'm putting all this in my report. Let your captain figure it out. I walked away, heading back to Karen. Are you okay, Josh? You see a pattern? I bet there's going to be a mixture of piss and blood on that little girl. Oh, God. Also, think about this. 
The first victim on the first investigation started off with seven stab wounds. The officer who investigated had six, and now this poor woman has five. This is the same guy, and he was doing it in that room in the catacombs. Although I think our perp is clearly psychotic, why the pissing in the blood? I sighed and shook my head. <sighs> I don't know, Karen. I don't know. Weeks passed. No activity from Fort Armistead. Good for the people of the Parks and Recreation crew, but shitty news for my murder investigations. I texted Calliope Matranga and told her about the activity inside Armistead and what was going on. She said that she had an operative that was going to investigate personally. I asked if I could be with them when they did, but she stressed that this wasn't going to be something that concerned me just yet. But if the killer was a supernatural threat, he wouldn't be able to use Armistead anymore as a hunting ground. The two officers who were supposed to have cleaned out Armistead were put on administrative leave with no pay. The board found them negligent in Jamisha Gaffney's murder. Their sergeant threw them under the bus faster than you could say job security. It made no difference. Young Gigi Gaffney was placed under Anne Arundel County Child Protective Services as Miss Gaffney had lived in Brooklyn Park. My investigation was taking some seriously strange turns. Each of the dead bodies had one thing in common, as if the perp was hunting them down for this reason. They all had something to do with Crownsville Hospital. Joe Smith was a patient, the police officer was a former guard there, and Miss Gaffney was a young nurse who was transferred out. The killer was going after people who were involved with Crownsville Hospital. But why Fort Armistead? What was the significance of Hell Room being a spot for three murders? I wouldn't know until we found our perp, or forensics came back with more information. It was Halloween night, and I was coming home from work to see children trick-or-treating on my block. My cell phone went off. It was Karen. Hey, Josh. Uh, what are you doing tonight? I just got done spending ten hours with you. Don't tell me you miss me, I responded as I got out of my car. I was going to go get a late dinner and wanted to know if you might want to come. Maybe we could watch some trick-or-treaters. You want me to come to your house? Well, it's an apartment, but yeah. There's a really awesome Chinese restaurant nearby. We could take it back to my apartment and watch scary movies and stuff. I needed to tread very carefully. This could be a situation that would jeopardize our working relationship. There was a connection. Karen and I knew it. Karen. Josh. I know, but there are things that I really want to tell you, and I don't want to do it over the phone, and I can't do it at work, so please. <sighs> I sighed and resigned my fate to either Aphrodite or to Ares. One way or another, I was going to have some surprises tonight. We met up for dinner and drove to her apartment in Columbia. Hunan Manor was delicious, but during the entire meal, she didn't talk about us. She didn't talk about the pink elephant in the room. She just talked about work. When we got comfortable on her couch, she finally spilled the beans. Josh, do you remember Daisy Johnson? Some weird asshole from Ivy tried to wipe my mind, but I wouldn't let him. I faked the whole thing. You knew it. But this might be a plant. I had to respond carefully. Huh. 
got despondent. I don't remember. Um, okay. You came to me, and you asked me, but I wanted to make sure that they thought it worked. I remember everything. I remember the... I leaned in and kissed her. There was a moment she was unsure, but I felt her reciprocate the kiss as she wrapped her arms around me. I slowly pulled my lips away from hers and leaned my forehead into hers. Thank you. For what? The kiss? I closed my eyes. No, for making me realize I wasn't alone. She responded back and caressed my cheek as tears gave down her face. You never were. My cell phone rang. What a fucking time to get a telephone call. I looked to see who it was, and it was the forensics lab. Dr. Guff probably had results. No, Josh, can't this wait until morning? It's Guff, Karen. He might have results. She let me go as I answered the phone. Lieutenant Chambers, it's, it's Doc Guff. What's going on? The results came back on the forensics. It's not good at all. What'd you find out? Well, the test results in the DNA found that the living witnesses to the murders all show links to a disease that could be catastrophic for them. Do you know what Kreutzfeldt Jakob disease is? No. Well, Lieutenant, it's basically the human version of the mad cow disease. Prions, which are basically mutated proteins, are in the blood and can access the brain of an affected person. The prions then change the brain's makeup. The brain makes some homicidal, warped, and crazy. What are you telling me, Dr. Guff? That the woman and the little girl are going to become maniacs? He sighed over the phone, as it seemed he didn't want to mess up the information. <sighs> Normally, the prions are misfolded proteins that replicate by converting the properly folded counterparts, which rapidly leads to the destruction of the brain itself. However, there's something in our perp's blood or body makeup that's causing the prions to mutate faster and more extreme. Instead of converting normal prions and destroying the brain, they're rewriting the brain tissue with the maniac's disease. Since the brain controls all functions of the body, the skin, other parts of the human host should begin to mutate as well. Dear God. Yeah, Lieutenant. With every kill and every infection, the perp is slowly growing a homicidal army. The color must have flushed out of my face because Karen mentioned Jesus. it. Jesus, Josh, are you okay? I hung up the phone, not even telling Dr. Guff goodbye. No. No, I'm not okay. Dark Charm presents... Noxo. The Case Files of Joshua Chambers. A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland, and beyond. Episode 6, No Comprende. This guy was good. Real good. His venue of horror changed from Fort Armistead to other places, and over the span of two months, his reign of terror went unchecked. Each of the new murders occurred in areas deemed haunted by Maryland folklore or tourist websites, and all of them had the same modus operandi. They all had ties to Crownsville Hospital. Lynn Franklin, an elderly nurse from the Negro Hospital days, was found stabbed four times and hanging from her neck on a bridge 
at Lotsford Road in Prince George's County. The bridge is called Crybaby Bridge. Her grandson and her infant great-grandson, who were knocked out during the assault, ended up with piss and blood on them. When police arrived, they could hear the sound of the baby crying. Needless to say, if they knew the legend of the bridge, they would have been spooked. The next person was a homeless black man named Willie Steed, who was stabbed three times in the heart. He was found spread-eagled out in the woods on Crane Highway in Glen Burnie. Where they found the body, there used to be an old house which had claims of being haunted. Several years ago, however, the house was demolished. They never did anything with the property. There was no secondary victim there. The black man was also a former patient at Crownsville. That is where someone found the first letter. It was addressed to me personally. The countdown is winding down, Chambers. Can you find me in time? I'll give you a hint. Home isn't where the heart is, but where you are chained. You'd better watch out. You'd better not cry. You'd better not pout. I'm telling you why. Krampus is here. For once, the state of Maryland decided that it was going to put effort into finding this guy. They kept me on the case once I started getting letters from him. It's like the asshole knew me personally but never called me by my first name. Just Chambers. The police tried to avoid telling the press anything, just so as not to incite the population of this. But eventually it was leaked. No one knew who provided the information. My bet was that whoever Krampus was, he leaked it. The people who were infected with the piss and blood of the perp were tested for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. All three were infected. The baby great-grandson of Lynn Franklin died two weeks after infection. The baby's father was confined to a padded cell as his mood and his demeanor had changed to the maniacal. Even little Gigi Gaffney was put into a padded cell. She displayed the tendencies for violence and a bloodthirsty nature almost immediately. It was really quite sad. Eventually, they will die from the exposure as their brain would theoretically erode away. That didn't happen. They started to become like Krampus. Evil. Lynn Franklin's son killed an orderly while they were serving him breakfast. He was put down by guards in an effort to protect themselves. Gigi Gaffney was put into an induced coma after she used a plastic fork to stab a CPS caseworker in the eyeball. Strange enough, the first woman who got the piss and blood shower from Krampus, Annabelle Graves, was absolutely fine. The doctors ran test after test on her, and she had no change in her behavior whatsoever. She didn't succumb to any of the symptoms of CJD. Maybe this was because her brain was already fried due to the heroin? I have no clue. That was depressing, and now it was going to get worse. I got a call on Thanksgiving Eve of all damn days about another murder. I was planning on going to Karen's to help prepare for Thanksgiving dinner, but apparently Krampus had other ideas. Maryland State Police wanted me to come to Annapolis to see what had happened. I haven't been to Annapolis since high school, so I was looking forward to seeing some of the old buildings on the State House. That wasn't going to happen. I was thrust immediately into the investigation by the State Police. 
The victim was an optometrist named Wallace Gray. He was found by the janitor and she called the authorities. She mentioned to them how he died, but I had to see for myself. They didn't touch the body until I got there. I pulled my car onto Main Street in Annapolis and got out. There were other Anne Arundel County police cruisers in the vicinity, and they had warded off the block. The place was called Eyes on Main. I thought it was a great name, until I walked inside. Against the wall was Dr. Gray. He was suspended against a wall with two large knives in each of his ocular cavities. He had been dead for a while. Jesus Christ, I said out loud. Anne Arundel County sent their forensic guy to look at Dr. Gray. He was a bald white guy with a brown mustache that looked too much like Tom Selleck's. Amazing, huh? Brutal, just brutal. Someone had to have a lot of strength to do that. What do you mean? The knives. They went through the brick. Behind the sheetrock is nothing but pure brick. And whoever did this put those knives through him and the wall to make him stand up there. Are you Chambers? Yes, I am. Why? He pointed over at the glass counter. He mimicked the America Online email app. You've got mail. That was proof that he was at least as old as I am. I smiled. Forgive me, but you are... He stood up and pulled off his gloves to shake his hand. Dr. Yodel Kent. That's a strange name. Where are you from? I responded as I shook his hand. I'm originally from Stevensville, but my father was a Jewish immigrant from Austria. Put on my own pair of neoprene gloves, just in case there were fingerprints. Dr. Kant shook his head. Already looked for prints. It was bare. Whether or not this guy is psychotic, that remains to be seen. But he is indeed smart. I opened the letter. But is he smart enough to not use his fingertips on the letter itself? I looked at the letter. The doc is dead. Good riddance. The countdown is almost over. You know who's number one? I'll give you a hint. There was a picture of me underneath with crosshairs drawn on it. The killer never used a gun before. The only thing he used was knives. This makes me wonder where he took this picture. And after close analysis, I realized where. I was at Karen's. The sins of the father become the sins of the son. You'll know where to find me, beautiful. Krampus. I handed the letter to Dr. Kant. Here. See what you can find. He started to read as he was getting his fingerprint kit ready. Krampus? That's some deep shit with Christmas coming around. What do you know about Krampus? Who is he? Dr. Kant looked at me in a confused manner. What? Did you think he just picked an alias like that for no reason? Krampus is the evil equivalent to Santa Claus. He's actually from Austro-Hungarian folklore. That's why I heard about it from my father, even though we were Jewish. We may have celebrated Hanukkah, but we knew about Krampus. You see, he is a horned, anthropomorphic figure described as half-goat, half-demon, who, during the Christmas season, punishes children who have misbehaved. In contrast with St. Nicholas, who rewards the wealthy cave with gifts. You mean like the Goat Man? I tried to rationalize. You know, the Goat Man, like the one people talk about in Beltsville? No, the legends about that one has nothing to do with Krampus. Well, this Krampus hasn't had any child victims, but there were two children affected by him. Well then, children will eventually become his game. If you don't watch out and get him soon, what happened to the children he came in contact with? I paused. 
Not because I couldn't tell him metaphorically, but I couldn't tell him literally either. This was classified unless you were on the case. This is the one thing that the media didn't know about. Unfortunately, that's classified. Dr. Kent shrugged, and he started dusting the paper. There was one lone partial fingerprint. I might have something. The forensic specialist took care of the print as I took a closer look at Dr. Gray's body. Around his neck, there were choking marks caused by a large pair of hands. The knives, sharp and deadly, were carefully pulled out of the skull of the corpse and placed in evidence bags. The body itself was zipped into a body bag for further examination later. I talked to Dr. Kant before he entered his car. How strong does someone have to be to get that type of result? He paused a moment to think. The equivalency of a silverback gorilla. Something didn't add up about Krampus. All the places of death were either areas haunted or affected by spiritual energy. Then I saw where the optometrist shop was located. It was next to the Maryland Inn, which had tales told about it that had been haunted for ages. Hours later, I drove back to Columbia with more questions than answers. I was mentally tired, but finally I arrived back at Karen's. This murderer had me worried now more than anything. He was coming after me, and that could hurt my family, and especially Karen. But why me? I never worked or stayed at Crownsville. I only visited. It had to do with my father. And his sins against Krampus were now my sins to bear. I got out of my car and I tried the doorknob. The door was locked, so I knocked. I still had my own house. And one day now that Karen and I were getting serious, I was going to ask her to move in with me. She opened the door dressed only in a red cloth apron. Her eyes conveyed her mood. My eyes widened as her sensuous body, her toned white tanned skin, and her perfect breasts started to make me crazy in all my pleasure points. I almost forgot what was going on. A good woman can do that to a man. But this definitely was not the time for hanky-panky. This was me being in my zone. Nuh-uh, dear. As much as it pains me to say this, but get some clothes on. We gotta talk. A look of disappointment crept upon her face. I got done most of the prep work for tomorrow. The turkey's almost thawed, and I thought that you and I could have some alone time. I walked into the apartment and sat down. I looked her dead in the eyes. He knew. That motherfucker knew. He who? I held up a copy of the letter that was sent to me by Krampus. What do you think? I'm his last target. No one around me at this point is safe. Karen walked into her bedroom. I followed like a mama bear after a cub. She started getting dressed. Normally this would depress me, but I wanted her alive and safe. I don't want to take any chances. I want you to go to your sister's house in Richmond. She pulled out her own gun from her bureau oh, drawer. Fuck that, Josh. I'm a cop too. I want to take this bastard out as much as you. Karen was no damsel in distress. I made a mistake thinking as such. But she showed me that she was even more vigilant than I. Moments later, there was a knock on Karen's door. Both of us pulled our pistols. We were on that edge. The eye hole that was on the door was broken, so I had no idea who was behind it. I dove deep into my angry black man voice. Who is it? I said with enough gumption to scare myself. There was no answer. This prompted me to pull open the door, and both Karen and I aimed at our target. Ho, ho, ho! 
there, cowboys. I need to talk to you. It was Calliope Matranga, one of the keepers that I had met during the problems with the Daisy Johnson case. She whispered as she raised her hands in shock. I pulled her inside. Jesus Christ, I was almost going to shoot you. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you too, Joshua. Karen was silent at first. Who... who are you? I sighed in resolution. I think she can know. Know about what? Is she your girlfriend? How did you know he was here? Detective Long, my name is Calliope Matranga. And I work for an organization that is assisting Lieutenant Chambers in his work. And vice versa, I responded back. What do you want, Calliope? It looks like you could use some help on this case of yours. Hmm? Because it's going to get uh, worse before it even starts to even remotely get better. She pulled out two photographs that had to have been from the late 70s to early 80s. It was a Christmas picture of two little white boys with brown hair. One looked to be five and the other about two. This is Brandon Nuttenreiter and his little brother Jimmy. What about them? I asked nonchalantly. When we did our version of our investigation at Fort Armistad, there was a reason why the killer chose that room. Jimmy and his brother were sexually assaulted in that hell room. And then when it was over, Jimmy Nuttenreiter was killed. His brother Brendan, he's the older brother of the two. He was left for dead. The police never got a record of the abuse, and Jimmy's death was labeled an accident. They never even called who it was. How do you know this? I had a feeling that she knew the words that came out of her mouth weren't going to sound right, but I knew what she was talking about. Mm, I talked to Jimmy. You mean you talked to Brendan? No, I talked to Jimmy. The dead one. He was the one causing the electrical disturbances. Karen walked to a cabinet and pulled out a bottle of Bacardi rum. I need a fucking drink. I motioned to her. Fuck the glasses, baby. Bring the bottle. So, Jimmy found out who hurt his brother and him. And now he's preventing him from killing more people? Are you saying Krampus is the killer? Calliope's face turned down. Karen noticed her apprehension. What? I asked. Calliope looked up. No, I'm saying that Krampus is Brendan. What the fuck? Karen said what I was thinking. Brendan was put in the loony bin. After all this went down, a test determined that what he had been through was made up. And let me tell you one thing, it wasn't. It was a clear cover-up. He knew who did all this, and he kept it to himself. They kept him drugged up and silent for years. Finally, he grew up and was taken out of that facility and put in Spring Grove, another loony bin. And then one day, he just disappeared without a flash, like if he was never there. Proverbial light bulb went off in my head. Wait a minute. My dad's bed in Crownsville was next to a B. Utenreiter. Maybe this was him. He was a younger guy, but not a child. I stood up and took a swig of Bacardi. The familiar sweet burn was all I needed. Brendan must be really strong. The amount of killings and the like would have needed at least two people and it was just one. The doctor in Annapolis stated that whoever killed Dr. Gray had the strength of a silverback gorilla. So combine that with the fact that he's a contagious carrier of CJD and he becomes a very dangerous man. How do you think he got so strong? 
He's feeding off of supernatural energy. It's making him stronger. Whether or not this is also making him more durable is a different story. Do you think he can take a bullet? Maybe several? Why do you think all of his kills have come where that activity is present? Calliope leaned back against the couch. Do you think you can take that information and run with it? Run with it? I have no idea where he would... Wait. I pulled out the first letter. I looked at it over several seconds and smacked my forehead after realizing that he was hiding from us in plain sight. Karen put a hand on my shoulder. What's wrong? I pointed to the paper below. I knew exactly where this asshole is going. He's going to try to get me to Crownsville Hospital. That's where all of this is going to go down. It's just a matter of when and at what cost. Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Episode 7 Krampusnacht It's December 5th, and Brendan Utenreiter has gone too far. I put out an APB on him after I got the information from Calliope Matranga, but that only helped a little. No one knew where Brendan was. He had no family left that had seen him at any point for 20 years. All we had to go on was an artist's rendering of the Christmas photo. It was nowhere close to what he looked like now. Dispatch for Anne Arundel County Police got a phone call from two nurses stating that someone had come into their children's ward and kidnapped three of the patients who were in their hospitals for procedures. The description was that of a man 6 foot 8 inches with a muscularly powerful physique and who could probably have weighed up to 375 pounds. He had long dark hair shaved on the sides and kind of like a neo-viking look and a long scraggly beard. His eyes were a shade of yellow and black. The nurse stated that for some reason he smelled like coal or sulfur, and it weirded her out until he made his move. The security people who tried to stop him were run over as if he were a bulldozer. They sustained very serious injuries. No one could stop him as he commandeered a large van and placed the children inside. Then he disappeared. After I got word from dispatch, I got a call from Dr. Kant. Tonight is especially significant in the Krampus myth, because this was his night, or Krampusnacht, as it is called. St. Nicholas's feast today is the next day, according to the Catholic Church. I thanked him for the phone call and started to make my way to precinct to get started on the manhunt, but then I got another call on my cell phone almost immediately afterward. It was an unlisted number, and I usually let those go to voicemail. I shouldn't have. Here's what I heard when I played back my voicemail. <laughs> what? Am I not important enough for you to talk to, Lieutenant? I just made your night even better. That sound you just heard was one of the orderly. <laughs> 
I'm going to have a lot of fun with these people. <laughs> Don't worry, Lieutenant Chambers. The kids are safe for now. Please, do me the favor and the courtesy of answering the phone when I call back. Or there will be another killing. <laughs> I turned around on the freeway as I headed to where I knew he was going. The inevitable had finally arrived. I was going to Crownsville Hospital. I called everyone I could during the trip to let them know what was going on. Other police began following me as word spread. Dispatch called me again. Krampus had kidnapped more children from a different hospital. It was at this point that every hospital in the state of Maryland was put on lockdown, but the damage had been done. Now Krampus had six little kids with him, and all of them were ill or injured. In my mind, I tried to understand why Krampus would do this. These children weren't bad. These children did nothing evil to warrant this, nothing like the Krampus in folklore. But maybe this is my problem. I'm not supposed to understand. This is the result of the mutant kreutzfeldt jakob disease in his brain, or the spirit activity that was feeding him the power. After I got off the phone with dispatch, I received another phone call. Hello, Lieutenant Chambers. Gosh, it's Calliope. You can't go after them without help. How did she know where I was going? I heard on the police scanner that they had a lead on the Krampus guy. That's why I called you. They're going to be slaughtered if they go in there without true protection. True protection? They got body armor and shit? And you're telling me that they'll be killed anyway? Precisely. I have an operative on the way here to meet you. You cannot let the other police officers near that plate. But the asshole has children in the hospital, Calliope. How the hell am I going to stop him by myself? She started to get exasperated. And I'm trying to tell you, Joshua, you aren't. My operative is meeting you there, and he will help. I got another phone call coming in while I was talking to Calliope. It was the same unlisted number as the original number that Krampus had called from. Listen, Krampus is calling me. I have to let you go. Never mind that now. He'll kill another person if I don't answer. I hung up abruptly on Calliope and answered the phone. Lieutenant Chambers. Is this Joshua Chambers? Yes. Yes, it is. Hi, I'm Jerry from Publishers Clearinghouse, and we... I hung up the phone. It was a fucking telemarketer. At a time like this, you'd think that real life would just stop, but it actually doesn't. Fuck! I shouted. I couldn't elucidate... Twenty minutes later, I had pulled up to the parking lot of Crownsville Hospital campus. There were several squad cars and a SWAT unit ready to deploy. I quickly got out of my car and ran to the head of the squad, a burly captain with a gray mustache. You can't let them go in there. He turned to me as if I were an alien or something strange that he had never seen before. And why is that? He's got six kids in there. We're doing our best to get him out. He's only one guy. He's going to kill the kids if you go in there willy-nilly. Well, who are you? Lieutenant Joshua Chambers, Baltimore Homicide Division, Detective Unit. I'm a special liaison in this case. Lieutenant Chambers, I'm not going to go in there willy-nilly. There are several places where I'm placing snipers to take this guy out. Those children are my highest priority, not that maniac in there that took them. He's doing this to get to me, Captain. I'm telling you. Let me and a colleague walk in there first. 
We can get this under control. A colleague? I only see you. I had to play it cool. He hasn't arrived yet. He'll be here shortly. <sighs> okay, Lieutenant. We'll give you 20 minutes. But then if your colleague isn't here by then, you'll go in with one of our boys. The anxiety washed over me like I was hit with a big wave at Ocean City. I walked back toward my car to get some things out of my trunk when I saw a man in a three-piece suit standing there. He wore sunglasses and his dark black hair was slicked back. He wore a pencil-thin goatee, much like Robert Downey Jr. in the Marvel movies, and his hand looked like a flat guitar case. Can I help you? He smiled. His grin was savage, almost predatorial. Ah, my name is John Darlington. I'm told that you have a problem there with someone of a higher caliber of power. Is this correct? You're the operative that Calliope sent? Indeed I am. His accent was strange. It wasn't from around here, and I wasn't sure exactly where he was from. So, what do we do? First things first. He started to walk toward the other policeman. He leaped onto the back of a squad car like he was a cat. Graceful. Sleek. He pointed at me. Do me a favor, Lieutenant. I need you to look at the hospital, and not at me for the next five minutes. I didn't know what he was doing, but I complied. I could still hear him talking, though. Hello, fellow police. I am John Darlington of the 169th Special Task Force, and I want you to know that we have everything under control here. I want you to, however, listen to me very carefully. This situation was a cut-and-dry case. You can turn off your car cams and your body cams. It was as if everyone in the vicinity was turning everything off. Did they totally comply with him? When finished, he continued. When you all arrived, my suspect was found, tied up, and left for you as a present. My colleague, Lieutenant Chambers here, will have found him and dealt with him. You will not remember me coming to you and even doing this speech, nor will you remember my involvement at all. Is this understood? I thought he was insane. There's no way that anyone would... We understand. Excellent. You will give Lieutenant Chambers and I two hours to take care of this. If we do not come back in that time, storm the building. Am I understood? Yes. yes. Darlington jumped off of the car and landed next to me. I whispered. How the fuck did you do that? Why did you do that? All I can tell you is that some things people should not know. I have a way of convincing the mind it did not see what it actually saw. We have some time. Darlington put his case that he was carrying on the hood of a squad car and opened it up. Inside was a long curved sword. Where the hell did you get that? I asked. It's been mine longer than you've been alive. He pulled it out of the case. It had a funny resonance, almost as if I could hear the screams that this thing had been used to kill. It was tremendously unnerving. How do I know I'm going to be safe in there with you? He pulled down his glasses and looked me over. You don't, sir. But that is the nature of the beast. Now, come on. Time is ticking. My cell phone rang once more. It was an unlisted number. I answered. Lieutenant Chambers. Brendan, don't do this. We can talk this out. Fuck you, Chambers. I'm not Brendan. I'm not even more. That part of me died in this 
Don't you hurt them! I know no one believed you. I know that no one thought that you were telling the truth about your abuse. No child should have to go through what you went through. That's what all this is about, right? I asked. There was a silence on the phone. It was enough that I thought that he had hung up on me. He finally replied. Doesn't matter anymore, Brendan. We're here to get you. I'm not Brendan. He hung up the line. It didn't matter. We were already at the front door of the main building. John Darlington looked at me steadily. Are you ready, sir? Ready as I'll ever be, I replied. My adrenaline was through the roof. I could have been drawn and quartered and wouldn't have felt a thing. I slowly opened the door. I had no idea where he actually was, but I got a creepy vibe walking into this abandoned place. It was as if the spirits of insanity itself were here, and they were trying to lash out at those who were sane. I noticed that John stayed in the doorframe. I turned around. What? What are you waiting for? He took off his glasses. This place is warded against people like me. Someone very powerful placed these wards. I cannot accompany you. I sighed. Great, how am I supposed to beat him? I can't very well shoot him, can I? John pulled out a small booklet. You're going to have to enact the ritual. I cannot fight him off unless you get him out here. He won't budge. Take the booklet. Ritual? What ritual? John pointed to the writing on the booklet. This ritual will destabilize the spirit activity in this place and drain him of his power. I was going to enact it inside there with you while you distracted him, but I do not have the luxury of that anymore. You're going to have to do it alone. The sense of fear washed over me. I looked at the booklet. The words didn't make any sense to me. If it was Latin or Spanish or even a little French, I could have pulled it off. This was like I was reading Greek. What language is this? How do I pronounce these words properly? This is Romanian. This is from my home country. You're Romanian. Transylvania, but uh, now that it's part of Romania, just chant this phrase over and over. Duplesias et impartisia du pueteria, puteri ut Christos de obliga. That was like trying to memorize the periodic table of elements. What the fucking hell? How am I supposed to memorize that? I can't even pronounce that! It's either that or I end up dead. Which one you want to do? I think Krampus can arrange either one. Not even Shakespeare could memorize this. It should decrease the spirit power that is feeding him, but only do the chant in front of him. I'm pretty sure that there are spirits and ghosts in the building that will come after you. And whatever you do, Lieutenant Chambers, do not lose the booklet. I snatched the booklet out of his hand, pulled my firearm, and walked into the former insane asylum. Remember, the gun will be useless without the booklet. Do the chant. I left John Darlington behind. This became surreal. The darkened rooms and the chill of the unknown came over me like walking into a haunted house on the boardwalk at Ocean City. The only difference being that this was real. The place, devoid of people, was a maze of broken things that were left behind when the place was shut down. 
the structure was beaten up and had fallen apart without constant upkeep. I remember being in this place as a kid and feeling uneasy, but not this creeped out. Fuck, Chambers, what have you gotten yourself into? I said as I thought aloud. I turned down the long hallway and walked into the first room, looking for Krampus. All that was in there were office desks and chairs. There was no place for them to move most of the things where they shut down the hospital, so they just left them here. Maybe they were going to reuse them for a new tenant for the building at some point. They kept suggesting that was the case. I noticed out of the corner of my eye a map of the grounds, and I picked it up to inspect. If Krampus was going to be anywhere, it most likely was going to be in the same room that he was kept previously. I knew where that was. It was the same room my father had been kept in. I exited the room after taking the map with me and headed into the direction of the room. But I was greeted by a brick wall. I looked curiously at the map and knew that this wall wasn't here before. I turned around to see whether or not I had maybe mistaken a different hallway, but then I was greeted with another brick wall. I was boxed in. I closed my eyes and tried to relieve my panic. Relax, Josh. You aren't being boxed in. This is an illusion. I reached out to touch the brick wall in front of me. It felt real to the touch. My cell phone rang. I answered it, but said nothing. On the other end was Krampus. Now you're going to feel uh, exactly as I have felt started to close in on me as I hung up the phone. I was claustrophobic. I never used to feel like this, but all I could do was try and push the walls back. I started to scream, help me, somebody please, stop! I sat down and curled into the fetal position. Trying to rein in my fear, I began to chant something else entirely. It was the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom the walls stopped moving, and I heard the sound of smashing coming from behind the walls to my left. Come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in... A figure smashed through the wall and stretched out a hand. Take my hand, I'll get you out of here. Heaven. I finished chanting as I stared into the loving face of my own father. Come on, boy, we don't have time. I didn't know if this was another trick or the source of my salvation from this hellhole. I decided that it didn't matter if I was stuck in this ever-increasing room. I grabbed his hand and he pulled me out. Minutes later, I was sitting in a well-lit and bright room. My father stood above me, and he looked like a million bucks. Like the rigors of dementia and eventually Alzheimer's were gone. He looked like he did when he was in the prime of his youth as a young cop in Baltimore. Papa, is that you? I asked. 
He knelt down as if I were still only three feet tall. I realized I was still sitting Indian-style on the tile floor. Yes, my boy, I'm here. How? You died years ago. My father smirked a little. Nothing, and no one has ever truly gone, my son. They just travel through a different plane of existence. Is... is this heaven? Am I dead? I asked. My father stood up. No, this isn't heaven. Why would heaven look like this? This is uh, just a way station. Or this could be just a product of your own mind trying to protect itself. Well, what do you think? I finally stood up. This doesn't feel like where I was. Are you protecting me? I've been protecting you my whole life. What's the difference even in death? I ran over and hugged my father tightly for the first time in a decade. He was real. He felt real. He hugged me back and kissed me on my forehead. Tears ran down my eyes. I looked at his warm, loving face. Papa, I'm so sorry. Joshua, don't fret that. You and your mother had to do what you had to do. It was almost too far gone for otherwise. What happened in this place had nothing to do with you but them. They didn't treat people like people in here. Brendan became colder until I no longer remembered Brendan. How do I beat him? I asked, wiping my eyes. How'd you beat that other motherfucker? Huh? Vern Garvey, how'd you beat him? I stuck to my convictions and I was able to turn away his attempts. My father pointed at me and smiled. You have to do the same thing here. You have to stick your, to your convictions. You must be utterly confident in the rule of law. You must be confident in your ability to enforce it and what is right and wrong. You are to be an agent of righteousness against all that is coming against you. I don't know if I have the power to do that, Papa. It was then that my father smacked me across the face. It hurt like hell. Ow! Papa, what'd you do that for? No son of mine is going to be pushed around by doubt. Every time you doubt yourself, remember that slap. You'll never go wrong. He then hugged me again. When I opened my eyes again, I was sitting against the wall in the hallway where I originally was. My face still stung from the slap my father had given me. This was my wake-up call. My convictions were super-powered, and I knew deep down, no matter what I would do, Krampus was going to get his. Dark Charm presents Noxo The Case Files of Joshua Chambers A crime drama set in the supernatural world of the Dark Charm universe and the havoc in Baltimore, Maryland and beyond. Ora de Folia, Hour of Madness, Season Finale. Madness. Crownsville was a place where madness reigned like a king. In medical science, the human mind is still a conundrum that must be solved to better suit and treat mental illness. Even though we have advanced quite extensively over the years, there is still so much that we don't know or understand about the human mind. What breaks it? What is the catalyst to make it do and act the way that it does? 
Now take that uncertainty and add the fact that Brendan Utenreiter suffers from a severe version of Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and you might realize what I am up against. Even though my mind was as sharp as a samurai sword before battle, there were these notions that the spirits and ghosts that reside in this place were still trying to get me to crack. They were still trying to get me to bend to their will, but it wasn't working. I finally arrived in the activity room where Krampus's old bed was located. Krampus was huge. He didn't have goat legs like his namesake, but he was massive. His legs were strong and hairy. His back was larger than most trunks of trees. I saw him watching over one of the children that were passed out on the dirty leftover beds. I wasn't prepared for what I was about to see. The loose jogging pants that he was wearing were down around his ankles. His cock was in his hand and he was masturbating. This was absolutely disgusting, and I thank God the children couldn't see this, but this was a new level of depravity I wasn't ready for. Freeze, Brendan, I said as I lifted my Beretta and aimed it square at the head of Krampus. He stopped and turned around. He paused for a moment and laughed maniacally. <laughs> you like what you see, Timbers? <laughs> he started masturbating again, looking at me this time. I wasn't playing games with this asshole, sick or not. I pointed my pistol at his member and smirked. You keep doing that, and I will not hesitate for one more second to blow your fucking dick off. You got me? Now put that away, pull up your fucking pants, and get down on the ground with your hands behind your head now! The smile Brendan had on his face deteriorated as I gazed at him. <laughs> Go ahead. Shoot me. See what happens. Last warning, man. I said, put it away and get on the fucking floor. He pulled up his pants, but then grabbed the sharp knife nearby. I'm... I'm going to kill you with one stab. One swipe. That's all you deserve. Come here. He started walking toward me. I let loose. Bullet after bullet came bolting from my pistol and made its mark, slamming into the flesh of Brennan Utenreiter with a sick thud with each impact. While doing it, I started chanting the words that John Darlington had told me to do outside of the building. Dulplesia si importesia di puterna, puteria lutristos de obliga. Do who plesia si empartesia tu puteria, puteria lutristos te obliga. But it seemed it was doing nothing as Brendan got bigger and stronger in front of me. I ducked a swipe as the knife whooshed across the air, missing me by mere centimeters from my throat. I rolled out of the way and fired two more shots while chanting. Tu plesia si empartesia ti puteria. Puteria Lutristos de Obliga. Duhu Plesia si Empartesia tu Puteria. Puteria Lutristos te Obliga. I noticed that Brendan was getting anxious. What are you saying? Are you a Buddhist or something now? You think chanting in some ridiculous language is going to stop me? <laughs> I didn't care. I kept chanting. Tulplesia si importesia di putera, puteria lutristos de obliga. Duhu plesia si importesia tu puteria, 
puteria nu Christos te obliga. He rushed at me like a bull in a pen. He slammed into me and drove me into the wall. The wall couldn't handle what was going on, and it caved in, sending both of us into the next room. Dude could have played middle linebacker for the Ravens, he hit me so hard. I opened my spasming eyes as I noticed that this room he had taken me through was where the doctors had performed full frontal lobotomies. The ominous table was still there. Brendan's eyes widened as he finally saw where he was. No. 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 Not this place. Not this place. I barely hear him as my own blood and pain seemed to pound through my skull like a freight train. Once my eyes realigned themselves on my skull, I realized that he was standing over top of me, looking at the equipment. The bullets that I had shot into him came out of his body and fell like raindrops on top of me. A little blood trickled down, but I avoided being hit. He was healing, but something strange was happening and I could guess what it was. Brendan was getting smaller. The chanting was working. His control over the spirits fueling him was diminishing. I struggled to my knees and dove for the medical table. I leaned forward and pushed at it with all of my might toward him. He screamed in a high-pitched fashion. Unlike the behemoth he was, it was almost comedic, like a little schoolgirl. He ran from it and into the hallway. <laughs> no, I won't do it again. While he was distracted, I continued to chant and grabbed the ECT machine nearby. The power cord was shredded, making the machine unable to be used. Fuck! I muttered under my breath. But he didn't know that the cord was frayed. Come on, Brendan. Time to get your treatment. I continued chanting as I walked quickly toward him. He cowered on the ground. No! No! I tried to pull my cuffs from my belt to restrain him, but realized that they fell off of my belt and crashed through the wall. Looking away was a stupid move as Brendan swept my legs behind me. I landed right on my head with a sickening crack. I knew that I was going to be concussion from this, but my adrenaline was too high for me to worry about that now. Before I knew it, Brendan had his knife in his hand, and almost out of instinct I grabbed his wrist as I prevented him from stabbing me in the chest. He was strong, and I was summoning all of the strength I could to keep the blade from going into my heart. I finally got to see the look of insanity on this man's face. His eyes were bloodshot, and his breath smelled of sardines and death. Spittle came from his mouth and landed on his face. Just a little more. I was so glad that I spent that extra money at the gym because I knew at some point in my life I was going to need it. I strained with all of my might as the knife's pointed tip touched my shirt and went through. I felt the blade sink a little into my chest. Would I ever see Karen again? I wanted to. But if I was going to tell you at this point in my existence that I survived this, I wouldn't have believed you. His grip went slack, and my mind felt disoriented for a brief moment. Somehow, I was now on top of him. Was it my strength that did this? I couldn't say. Maybe Daddy gave me more than I thought. You are under arrest. 
It was all I could muster from my mouth. I'd like to think that it was my dedication to duty in my line of work, but it felt more like instinct. I felt the rush of hands all over me and all over Brendan. I looked up to see Marilyn's finest, taking him off me and him into custody. I felt a wet discomfort on my pants and lower parts of my body. While on top of me, he had urinated himself. It seeped into my pants. I immediately looked to the officer that was next to me. Take my pants off. He pissed on me. He didn't seem to worry about that as he dragged me to my feet. I couldn't hear the words he was saying. It was the commotion of the brain injury and my own blood pressure pounding in my head. My adrenaline fell, and I passed out. I regained consciousness some time later, not knowing where I was. All I could smell was the sterile atmosphere of a hospital. My eyes widened, but I was in a real hospital, not Crownsville. The machines went through the rhythm of informing people that I was still alive. You're awake. How are you feeling? A voice came from my left side and said to me. I felt a gentle hand on my arm. I turned my head and focused my eyes on who was standing there. I couldn't see very well, but I detected the faint smell of a familiar perfume. My mouth was drier than the Mojave Desert. Karen, I breathed softly. I don't think my vocal cords worked at that particular moment. The chill of the oxygen going up my nostrils through the tube on my nose helped me breathe better, but made it hard to talk. She leaned in closer and kissed me on my forehead. You went out for a while. That was an understatement. I knew I was out at least a day, but after that I wasn't sure. How long? You were put into an induced coma after the swelling in your brain wouldn't go down. Um, you, you've been out for two months. Uh, once the swelling went down, they could wean you off the knockout juice, but you were still out a little while after that. I missed Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. I felt like an absolute schmuck. Kids. They're safe. They're taken back to their proper hospitals. The officers that raided Crownsville said that you thought Krampus peed on you, but you actually peed yourself, my dear. That was a relief. Krampus? He was caught and sent to a psychiatric facility, but he, he died two weeks after the incident. I guess the disease finally took its toll on him without the ghosts keeping him strong. Well... Help me sit up, I asked. She grabbed the remote on the bed that I was staying in and helped elevate my upper body. Some of my bigger sensations began to come back to me. I had a catheter shoved where the sun doesn't shine, which sucked. I also had a fresh bushy beard. There were specks of gray and white coming in. I knew being clean-shaven for all of those years was going to reveal something that I couldn't ignore. My face itches, I said softly. <laughs> I kind of like the beard. You look very distinguished and sexy. I could hear a faint door knock in my room. Karen stood up to see who it was. It was Captain Graff. He seemed to look worse than I did, and I didn't even have to look into the mirror to tell that. He smiled as he brought a get-well-soon balloon and some flowers. There was something else in his other hand, but I couldn't see what it was. Well, 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 you're up. Captain Graff, you don't have to do that. Captain Graff set those things down on the counter nearby. Well, yeah, but that's not the only reason they came by there, Josh. Graff pulled out a medium-sized box from inside his coat breast pocket. Uh, the governor gave you a medal of honor. 
and a citation of valor for what you did. He opened the box to show me the awards. Tears streamed down my face. I don't know what to say. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to say anything. Graf sat down in the chair next to me. The display of bravery and uncommon valor got the approval by the mayor and the superintendent to give me the pleasure of making you, you my replacement in the agency. You mean... Yep. Captain Joshua Chambers. That was a, that was a nice ring to it, don't you think? I would be more touched under different circumstances. Well, hey. It is what it is. Now get better. We're not getting any younger. Graf was only stepping down because the sands in the hourglass were all messed up for him. The treatments were not going well. Several months later, I was cleared to return from injury. I went to the awards ceremony, and I started to attend the training sessions. I needed to be able to do my job as captain. In the meantime, Graf got progressively worse, and the day before I was finally to start my new life, I was going to a funeral. Life and death put everything into perspective. Krampus wanted to ruin my life. Hell, ruin everyone's lives if he had the chance. It was a special kind of man to take out a special kind of menace. And that's what people needed me to be. I hadn't seen the enigmatic John Darlington or Calliope Matranga much after I got hurt. The recovery time was, I guess, more than they had planned. I had become too famous for my own damn good. Away from the morbid perspective of death brings the promise and prosperity of new life. I knew in my heart that Karen was the right woman for me, bar none. So I decided to ask Karen to be my wife. She said yes, and several weeks later, I found out she was pregnant. If the baby is a girl, we're naming her after her grandmother, Josephine. If it's a boy, we're naming him Milo, after the captain's middle name. Either way... I'll be satisfied. This life of mystery and intrigue can stop for a little while. In the cast you heard Daniel Mac McCloskey playing Joshua Chambers, Emily McAnulty playing Karen Long, Stacy Atwell playing Louise Johnson and Calliope Matranga, Leanne Rieger playing Sheila Sanders, Miguel Pedroza playing Captain Michael Graff and Krampus, Alan Farrell playing Dr. Yodel Kent, and Danny Atwell playing a variety of characters. All rights reserved. Noxo Remaster 2023. All rights reserved.